Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. This is another hot debrief episode where we will go through the what worked well, what didn't work well, and what someone might do differently in this episode. And today we have Grant Edwards, APM, the strong commander, as a lot of people know him. So g'day, Grant. G'day, Matt. How are you going? Pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And today's episode is a little bit different because we've got the first of our co-hosted episodes and we have... Milne, who most people would recognise from uh, episodes one and two. So, uh, g'day, Milne. G'day, everyone. G'day, Grant. Hey, Milne. We're uh, we're spread all up the east coast of Australia here, uh, all the way from Melbourne up to the Gold Coast. So, uh, yeah, this will be interesting. We've got it covered. Yeah, we've got the east coast covered, all right. So, Grant, you're uh, you're quite a well-known personality, I guess, in the in the scheme of things, all things policing, actually. There's a lot of police out there that nobody knows anything about, but uh, certainly you're a, you're a known entity. And what I'd like to start off with is just tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid, because I think we, we know a little bit about what you were like as an adult and a big adult at that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just give us a rundown on what you were like as a kid. Well, I'd like to say that I was um, a really good kid and almost perfect, but I know if if you had my sister on here, she would uh, she would give you a very different description. But having said that, I know what you know. What was consistent throughout you know all my school and everything is you know uh, Grant is a lovely student, um, quiet, uh, attentive, uh, and um, if he stopped daydreaming, he'd be even better. And that sort of sums up what my what my childhood was like because I I can vividly remember sitting in the classroom, you know, staring out the window, and the teacher like Grant, Grant, what do you think about that? And I'm like, oh God, I didn't hear anything. But uh, you know, I, I came from a uh, from a single parent family, and uh, and certainly back in the 70s, I guess you know when I'm sort of most of my growing up was done, that was almost unheard of back in those days. Yeah. Uh, I think from memory, you know, I was probably. My sister and I were the only ones that we knew in in our respective schools that that had that, and um, and I guess what complicated you know our family was that when I was quite young, um, my father declared um, that he was gay, and that's what led to the family breakup, and then that that had a cascading effect you know with my mother in terms of um, becoming reliant on alcohol, so uh, sometimes I say you know we had a bit of a dysfunctional family, um, but it was still a loving family. And, you know, like every family, we had our problems. Uh, but I believe that, um, you know, that background is what set me up, you know, and, and most kids are the same as to who I am today because I, at a very young age, I, I took I took on responsibility. I had no choice. So my mother mm-hmm. worked two jobs. Um, like I said, we lived at home with her. And it was my responsibility to look after my sister and make sure being the, you know, being the older sibling and, and siblings, like many siblings, always fought and argued and things like that. But, um, you know, as I used to say, no one's allowed to pick on my sister other than me. And uh, <laughs> that, that philosophy got me in trouble a few times because I did I did take umbrage at, uh, uh, you know, at some of the lads I went to school with that thought it was okay to bully and, and, um, and be nasty. And that sort of sat with me. I guess that sort of formed the cornerstone of my mentality because um, I really dislike bullies. I really dislike 
people that think that they have a right that they can say or do whatever to, to another person uh, in a derogatory manner. So that that's sort of um, you know a, a brief overview of how I was as a kid. But I was an average kid. You know, I I played sport. I played football, rug, rugby league. Um, that was the only thing I knew. It was probably a coach's nightmare. So, so what were you daydreaming about? Yeah, I, good question. <laughs> I think I, I think I was just getting lost. I mean, I'd like to think of it yeah. now. You know, after all the uh, the therapy that I've done, that I was doing active mindfulness. But um, oh yeah, good. yeah, that, that didn't exist back that, then. Yeah. That, and, and maybe that was what I was doing, un- unknown to me. I like it. Um, and it kept me, you know, kept me centered. Was, was that up in Queensland? Was it? I'm assuming. No, no, I grew up in New South Wales, so I lived out um, in the western suburbs of of, uh, of Sydney, uh, place right. mostly. I mean, I moved around a lot as a as a child. I think. I think I stopped counting um, at about 20 places by the time I was in high school. But I lived oh, at a yeah. place called East Hills. And for those that are sporting fans, that that may um, take some resonance because there, there was a couple of pretty famous sportsmen that went to my school, being Mark and Steve Waugh and then later on Ian Thorpe, um, right. all younger than me, of course. So it was um, – I, I my childhood was tough, but I enjoyed it. Do you think most of your resilience came from your childhood growing yeah. up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you you do talk about the I suppose the power of adversity shaping you, which I'd love to talk a bit about later on. But that's mm. that's quite an interesting start, isn't it? Like to mm. uh, to put that lens on on how that's shaped you. Yeah, oh, a- absolutely. In fact, I I was talking to a friend the other day who's um uh, very very high up in in um, you know doing um, um, sports mind work and things like that and and we actually talked about that we talked about the the different mindset in between what it's like to be an athlete in the u.s wanting to make it into say the nbl or the nfl and an athlete in australia and the and the different mindsets but yeah we can talk talk about that later i am i can get i do have a potential going down rabbit holes and i've listened to your previous podcasts and i'm not going to do that i promised myself i wouldn't do that (laughs) i go down enough rabbit holes i think (laughs) Yeah, concentration's not one of my uh, my solid attributes these days, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, so the rabbit holes are are uh, they're everywhere. So, what drew you to the AFP? Well, it was it, there was nothing in particular. I mean, I um I, I just seemed to be unlucky with my timing. Um, and, and I tell <laughs> I tell this story. I've told it before, but my grandmother, God bless her, on my mother's my mother's side. Um, you know, I was very close to her and. She had her tea leaves read once, and she was told that she was going to have three police in the family. Well, she'd already had her own son, who was in New South Wales Police, and then her son-in-law, who married my auntie, he was in the New South Wales Police as well. So it was always assumed that I would do that, and I'd always, I'd always wanted to do it. And my my goal back in the in the seventies was I was going to leave school at sixteen and join the cadets, but the year I was going into the year ten, the, the New South Wales Police disbanded the cadets, and they said, "Well, you've got to, you've got to have a high school certificate." And uh, and I went, "Oh, okay, all right." You didn't have to have a pass mark or anything; you just had to have it. So I went <laughs> to school. I tried to study hard, but I, I didn't know how to study. Honestly, that was part of my problem. I spent a lot of time reading books and doing things, and nothing ever sunk in. I think I was probably daydreaming again. Um, so I, Mind, I, Let's call it mindfulness. My, well, I, like, I think that's, that sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Active, active mindfulness. So I, um, I, I went through high school, loved every minute of it, ha- had the best time ever, worked as hard as I could, uh, and got my high school certificate. And then that year, New South Wales Police 
decided to put a cap in terms of the mark on it. Well, I missed the mark by by two marks. <laughs> um, so my options were to go back and and repeat and do it again, or uh, wait a few years and try and enter just as a normal, you know, what I guess what they call a mature age. But um, uh, so the AFP wasn't even on my radar at that stage. I I, um, I, I was training and then. Uh, working and, and long story, but I ended up getting a scholarship to University of Hawaii to play American football. So um, went over and, and, and did that. How did you jag that? Like American football wasn't big over here. How on earth did you get that? Funny story. I, um, I, I was actually one morning at the gym and I got home and my mother said, oh, I just watched the, um, I think it was Good Morning Australia way back then when um, in the early 80s, and they had a, an American football coach on, and he was looking for people that were, you know, around six foot two and that could run pretty fast. You do, you can do that. And um, I, I'd always loved American football, but I'd only ever watched the NFL. And I just remember watching these brutes, and I thought, oh, geez, I don't know if I want to bang myself up like that. So I didn't think much about <laughs> it. And uh, and she took the initiative and went and rung the the TV station, and then. Next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from this coach from the University of Hawaii saying, can we meet? And I'm okay. Um, so um, he, he came he came over. Um, he said, I want to do some tests. Oh, that's, that's right. He invited me to a ho- um, his hotel room. I remember it was in Glebe in Sydney. And, and I wasn't in the cops then, but I, I had all the red flags going. I'm like, hang on. He's inviting me over to a room in a hotel. I'm a bit worried. So I'm doing all the... Looking around, checking the doors and checking the exits. So, I, and you know, I hadn't even been exposed to that culture then. And I remember his name was Rich, and uh, and he opened the door, and I walked, and it was all dark. So, you know, <laughs> my my heart rate started to rise. I thought, oh, is this a setup or what? And he, um, we went into a um into the into a TV room, and there was a big um a big sheet on the wall. And I'm like, okay. And he starts up this old reel-to-reel projector. This is not getting any better. No, no. no. Doesn't look good. <laughs> no. Nah. And he started up this reel-to-reel projector and he was showing me a game, you know, and he said, look, this is what we're looking for. We're, and we're looking for you in these positions, you know. We, we call them sort of – he says, how much do you know about American football? I said, I know about it a little bit. So he'd really dumbed it down because it, it wasn't that big a thing back in Australia at that stage. No, not at all. No. So he had a look at the film and everything. and um, and uh, we, we spoke and he asked me, you know, questions and things. And then he said, um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a few people I'm talking to. He goes, um, thanks for coming in. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you if, um, you know, if, you, if we think you're right. And three days later, he got back to me and he said, um, can I come out and meet your parents? And I went, oh, really? I mean, that, around that stage, I was still quite adversarial. I thought, <laughs> so I remember, I think I was 18 at the time because you know, I, I just left school. And I remember saying to both my parents, can, can you just guys just be nice at this stage? And they were. They were great. <laughs> um, so he, he came out to where, where I lived and he goes, I've got to do some testing. And I thought, wow, I've only got like three days to, to do this testing. He said, don't worry about it. He said, it's no big deal. I went, yeah, okay. So I remember thinking, I didn't ask him what it was, but we went down to a park. He made me do a 40-yard um, sprint. He made me do a vertical jump. And then he did an Achilles test on me. And that was it. And I'm like, is that it? And he goes, no, I've seen enough. Wow. Anyway, came back, spoke to my parents, said that um, they whittled the list down to four people. They've only got enough for three scholarships, so someone's going to miss out. Don't know who that is. I'll let you know. 
I'd been selected in the Australian junior track and field team at that stage. I was going over to to Korea. That was my my, my first chance to represent Australia. And uh, and I, I didn't think I'd get the scholarship. I thought I, I know he told me that he'd uh, he had a, a number of um, really good uh, rugby players who were at the top of the list. Uh, and I went, okay, you know, it is what it is. We'll move on. I was happy that I was going over to the to the athletics. Anyway, about. Um, a week later, I get a phone call, and he said, um, "Congratulations! Uh, w- want to bring you over to Hawaii for a weekend with the other two, and uh, just show you around and introduce you to the team and give you a look at you know what you're in for. Um, we, you know, we want to offer you a scholarship." I'm like, "Whoa! I don't know." Again, you know, didn't have the internet, so I couldn't Google anything, couldn't find anything out. Unless <laughs> I sort of ran down to the library, um, and I remember going to the airport, and I, and I ended up going over that weekend with um, with a guy called Colin Scott, who actually um, became very successful and got drafted into the NFL after his stint there. And another guy called Brett Gale, who um, you might remember, Matt was in the New South Wales Police for a while, but he was uh, he was in a cap, the end up captaining, I think, Western Suburbs NRL team. Yeah, um, I remember the name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So him and his brother Scott Gale, and so um, we we went over and had a fantastic weekend. Came back and then they rang me the week later and said, "Can you can you come over next week?" And I went, I, "I'm going to be in Korea. Can I, you know, can we organise that?" So, end up coming back from Korea one day home, packed my bags, went over and and, and started. So, um, I by that stage I'd sort of given up on on the whole policing. I thought, well, I'll give this a go. You know, I I get get an education, get to learn a different game, different culture. Um, I was familiar with Hawaii because I'd been there before on another sporting team. Um, but getting to the meat of your question, when, when I came back um, from Hawaii, I, I applied again to the New South Wales Police, and uh, and I, they, I just kept getting reasons why I I, I couldn't um, I couldn't join, and I know that it's around that time they um, New South Wales Police were were pretty full; they weren't looking for too many, um, so I was on this wait list. And, and the wait list kept going and going and going. And then I ended up getting a rejection letter saying, no, sorry, um, we're going to reject you medically. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and um, and I never really got an answer. I even wrote a letter to the then police minister and never got an answer. Uh, and then I was home one day in the weekend. I was, as you do in those days, I was going through the paper looking for jobs and there was this ad come for the AFP. And I'm like, oh, who are they? What are they? And uh, and I, I put in, and I think at that stage I'd put in for AFP, I'd put in for Northern Territory Police, I'd uh, I'd also put in for Aviation Fire and New South Wales Fire. I thought I'll just I'll just throw it out there, and the AFP come back real quickly, um, put me through the testing, did everything. I um, got to the to the medical, and then they said, um, Oh, you're overweight. You need to lose weight. And I went, What do you mean I'm overweight? I think I was weighing about 115 kilos. And they said, no, no, you, you, you cut your obese in the BMI. You need to come down to 90, oh, BMI. 93 kilos. And I said, oh, hang on, last time I was 14 when I was 93 kilos. No, you've <laughs> got to lose the weight. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And I tried and tried and I, I couldn't. And uh, they just put me on holds. And this, this would have been around 1984. And I got frustrated because I wasn't getting any success anywhere else. So, I, I, you know, I had this genius idea one day where I'd just ring them up and say, hey, I've lost the weight. And yeah. I did I did that. And they're like, great, fantastic, congratulations. All right, we need you to come down to Sydney because I was living up on the Central Coast at that stage. We need you to come down to Sydney and, um, and meet with the doctor. And I'm like, oh, 
Uh, can you do that next week? I said, oh, I'm trying to think on my feet, you know. I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, I'm about to join, I'm potentially about to join the police. I've told my first lie. This is going to go well. Um, so I, um, I, I said, oh, I've got some commitments that I've got to do. I can't get away. Can you give me a month? And they're like, okay. I went on this stupid crash diet. And um, like, I mean, significant crash diet to the point where in the last week I wasn't eating anything. I was living on what? we would call like a really loose chicken broth and water. And um, and I got down to about 90, 97 kilos and I thought, oh, wow. surely that's enough. From what, 115? Yeah, yeah, in almost a, a month. I just, wow. it was basically, um, I, I just, I, I stopped eating. It was almost, oh. I went into malnutrition deficit. And, uh, and I thought, all right. And, and then I got the call to say, you need to come to Sydney. Um, we need you to see the... The, the, what was the, the CMO, the Commonwealth Medical Do- Officer, the doctor. And I remember when I was leaving and my mum my at the time was being treated for high blood pressure and I, I knew enough to know that um, she was on diuretic. So I, I, I slipped four little diuretic pills into my, into my pocket when I was going down on the train. I thought, oh, because I'd read about it in the paper where boxers do that. You used to do that before all the, the testing to drop weight to get mm. in. And I thought, well, if I can lose that extra you know, two or three kilos, I might be a chance. So, and it was a fairly long train ride down from the coast in those days. And I, um, I took a tablet, silly, you know, silly, while I got on the train. And they didn't have toilets in those days. Oh, well, no. th- th- those tablets were working fine, let me tell you. And I, I, I had to get off the train on the way down to go to the toilet. Otherwise, you know, it would have been a nasty mess. And then when I, when I got to Sydney, I had to wait. And I, um, I ended up having to walk from the centre of Sydney down to Circular Quay, which is a bit of a walk. And um, I was spent. I had nothing. I had a headache. I was dizzy. But I stumbled on down there. I, I, I'd weighed myself at one of those old penny weigh scales and it said that yeah. I, was, I was still 96 kilos. I'm like, you're kidding me. I think I've just peed out about four kilos of, of urine. <laughs> I later found out my scales at home were, were wrong. So I thought I was 97, but I was still 100. Anyway, long story. I go down. I get to the doctor's office. It's lunch, just after lunch, and I'm sitting there. And the lady's like, "Are you all right, son?" And I went, "No, I'm, no, I'm just a bit, feel a bit." Wonky. She goes, hmm, "Have a, let me get you a glass of water." No, I don't need a glass of water. <laughs> I'm right. I don't have anything. Yeah. She goes, you, "You look, you don't look well." And I went, "No, I'm fine." I said, "I said I'm just nervous." He goes, "I oh, don't be nervous." Doctor Dwyer, his name, he's a lovely guy. So he comes back. And he's late and he's apologizing. And I mean, he walked in the room and I could smell the alcohol. And I found out that he'd been, he was an ex-Air Force doctor and he'd been at a reunion. And he's, um, he's sitting, uh, he came in and he, he came in, he's got his glasses on his head like that. And he's faffing around looking, and he's in his coat and everything and his bag. And he says, I think I've lost, I think I left my glasses at the, at the event. He goes, what are we, what are we here for? And I said, oh, I've got, I'm, I've, got to weigh myself apparently I'm overweight he goes oh you're not overweight that's a stupid rule jump on the scales and I jumped on the scales and he goes I can't see he goes what does it say and I hesitated and I thought do I tell my second lie or do I just accept it and I went oh I said oh I know I'm supposed to be 93 but it says that I'm 95 and a half I don't know why I put the half in and he goes, oh God, that's that's fine. I'm happy with that. And he, and he and he signed off without even looking at the scale. And I thought, you're kidding me. You know, I've just put myself through hell. Um, yeah. I got downstairs. There was a McDonald's about four doors up. Um, went in, had the biggest burger and coke. And of course, you can imagine what happened uh, about ten minutes later after oh, that. Of sat in. Yeah. So 
oh, I, I, I end up getting in the AFP. I remember both my uncles saying to me at the time flippantly, you know, why do you want to be a security guard for? You know, they're not real cops. And that, oh, that, really? Uh, and, um, and, and that was that was a big part of the AFP back in. And I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if you you guys are aware, but in particular, I know, because I worked alongside New South Wales Police, you know, the AFP were always called the plastics, you know, not real, yeah, the plastics, not yeah. real police. Yeah. Um, my retort was, well, it's better than being perspex and twice as thick. But, um, <laughs> you know, we had that sort of that relationship. But that that's that was what what and I I knew nothing about the AFP at the time. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's what I was wondering whether it was part of your family. And it's no. interesting your uh, your inroads to have to cut weight because uh, my dad joined. What did you say? That was about eighty five or something. I, I got in the. I, I went to eighty five. I joined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I think I think my old man joined in about seventy two in New South Wales. And to to prove your point, uh, he he is not a little guy and was never a little guy and had to bulk up to get in. So they wanted they wanted meatheads. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I remember uh, after recruit training when I we used to have what was called the bullpen, where you'd have to sit. You know, that was the chief inspector and and a couple of inspectors and they just did the old bang you with um, with information. I remember I walked in and the the one who was a chief inspector looked at his colleagues and he said, where's this unit going? That's what he referred to me as. And they yeah. said, oh, we're sending him to Sydney. He goes, we need to keep him in Canberra. We need him on the truck, uh, at w- which was, ah. you know, uh, basically what they used to refer to as the hoodlum patrol back in those days yeah. in Canberra. Um, and uh, But I ended up going to Sydney. So, uh, we, you know, the way they structured it back then was, you know, if you'd come from sort of Queensland, Northern Territory, Western Australia, you, you worked in Canberra because they didn't have a big footprint in those areas. So, yeah, I ended up going to Sydney. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I would be would have been considered a meathead by the by the, uh, by the bosses <laughs> back then. So not no other sort of direct family no. policing? No. Um, yeah, it was, no. It was all, all New South Wales police, but well, both my uncles. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, and I'm, I'm glad, you know. I, I mean, I did think about leaving a couple of times early on in the piece, um, like a lot did. A lot uh, back in those days, there were, um, it, you know, the AFP lost a lot of people up to Queensland after the Royal Commission when they were doing the the first of the lateral entries and things like that. Hmm. But, um, but hmm. you know, I, I stuck there, and I'm glad I stuck it out because you know I had a great career. Yeah, you certainly did that. Um, we'll get to, uh, I suppose, a couple of your stories, but uh, you know, there's pages and pages of interesting deployments and postings that you've you've had as part of that career. Mm. So, um, it's been a full thirty five odd years mm. of it, of service in there. It was. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you could have fit anything else in. I was going to say, um, Grant, in um, ninety one, you joined the bobsled team. Yeah. How did you come across that? Like, obviously, there's not much snow in Australia, so. No. <laughs> Um, you, I was going to say, Europe. did you just say bobsled? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bob. Yeah. I again, I, I was in the right place at the right time. So, you know, if, if you if you go back, do you remember the '88 Olympics in Calgary? That was that spawned the old yeah. Jamaican team, you know. Yeah. And the Australian team that went and were the first to do that, they kind of split up, and the, the federation were looking for like athletes. And I, I got a phone call from. New South Wales um, Athletic. I remember because I was actually on a surveillance deployment in Sydney. We were doing a drug bust. And um, and they were the very early days of the mobile phones. And uh, my mobile phone was pinging. And um, and I, I couldn't answer it until the next day, until after we'd finished. And uh, it, they asked me to give them a call. I gave them a call and they said, oh, we've, we've had a, um, a reach out from the Australian uh, bobsled team. And they gave us some parameters in terms of athletes they're looking for. And you, you fit the criteria. Are, are you interested? And I went, 
Okay. Huh. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> Give it a go. Um, and, and the rest is history. So um, we started uh, doing the bobsled in 92. Um, we actually qual- we actually made, qualified for the 92 Olympics, but um, but the Australian Olympic Committee, even though we qualified and met all the criteria, they, they didn't take us. And wow. so I did bobsled from 91, uh, 92. And then um, my my eldest daughter was born in '93, and uh, and I, uh, I I end up uh, not going in. So I did World Cups, we did World Championships, you know, did all that stuff. Yeah. Travelled all around Europe, and wow. pretty much exhausted all my leave. And um, <laughs> you know, they didn't get any support in those days. Um, and um, you know, did leave without pay to do that, hoping that we would have got the '92 Olympics. And then that was the year where the, the, the time where they they split the Olympic. Year. They used to have winter and summer in the same year, and that was when they split it to alternate years. So the next Olympics yeah. was '94, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go through um, to that, uh, but didn't. The guys that I all went through, they all made the Olympics and went to the '94 Olympics, which was awesome. I was a tad jealous, but it was my choice, so um, I missed out that. But that kind of worked in my favour because I inadvertently then ended up doing strongman. Yeah. After that, so yeah, that, right. that's sort of the, the timeline. I'm going to say all your training, your, all your training in a billy cart going down that road that goes up to Telecom Tower in uh, Canberra didn't cut it. <laughs> There's enough billy carts doing that. But we used to actually train on the um, the old Grand Prix Grand Prix tri- uh, track in Adelaide, uh, pushing what right. was kind of like a billy cart. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Unbelievable. I don't remember seeing that in your uh, in your bio, but anyway. <laughs> Oh, um, you asked me for a short boy. I'll give you the short one. <laughs> I don't know why people keep doing this to me. I'm, I'm having I, the weird part about this podcast is I'm talking to people that are blowing my mind. Like, and even my kids these days are going, "Why would they want to talk to you, Dad?" And I'm like, <laughs> "I have no idea." <laughs> yeah, these impressive people are in. Yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff. But anyway, I know. Uh, well, actually, I don't know a lot about the AFP, to be quite honest with you. You're not and, on your and, own there, mate, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I really, uh, I, I suppose I learned a lot just looking through your bio about what you've done in the AFP because, you know, I think, as you said, back in the back in the old days, it was the security guard police force. Mm. And, uh, you know, I suppose in most people's heads, they think, yeah, GD's in Canberra and looking after Parliament House, and that's about it. Yeah. And, um you know, other than that, I like I really I've never had much to do with the AFP and the jobs I've had in in New South Wales Police, certainly. But um, you know, probably from a counterterrorism point of view, I guess they've I, I always sort of went, oh well, that'd be you know, led and coordinated by them probably. But you, you've done some amazing stuff. So could you could you just give us a rundown on some of the I suppose the standout postings or deployments that you've had in your various roles with the AFP, just to give us a bit of an idea of that diverse policing role mm. um, that I guess not a lot of people would understand. Mm. And, and uh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, very, very simply structurally was there are, um, I think there are, I don't, I don't know if there's another, it's what's called two outcomes. What we used to call two outcomes is outcome one, which is the broader national component and outcome two, which is what you touched on, the um, the policing in the um, ACT. Um, it was also Christmas Island, Cocos Island, and I think up until a few years ago, Norfolk Island, where the AFP um, police that as well. But p- part of that broader picture is that the AFP uh, has a, a remit to um, do the international work. So I, I can't tell you the numbers now. I'm a little bit out of tune, but 
last time, I think we were at, the AFP had representation in 30-odd different countries around the world, um, just in the diplomatic component where, where you're posted to, you know, um, embassies, high commissions, consulates, things like that. And, and when I joined, I remember the, the day in August 85 when they, we had to get up and tell us what, you know, we had to tell the class what their aspiration was. And mine was to be detective sergeant because we helped, we did have those ranks in, in those days, um, running a drug squad. I thought that was the bee's knees. <laughs> and, and everybody was about the same, you know, uh, but I, I wasn't, I, I never had an aspiration to do the international work. Well, no, no, I had aspiration to do it, but I never really thought I would. And it wasn't until I moved down to Canberra in 94 and I was working in internal affairs, which was um, which was a great job. I learned so much and worked with so many great people. But but overall, it, it, you know, I think as you both know, um, to a degree, it's not well received by others in the organisation <laughs> that you're working in that. Right. And to make things worse, um, in, in those days, the, the Commonwealth Ombudsman dictated that there at least had to be two two members of internal affairs that weren't Canberra-based because the majority were. The majority of complaints came out of Canberra, but you had to have this national experience. So I was one. And back in those days, you, you didn't, I guess, uh, get to work in internal affairs unless you're a sergeant. And um, and I wasn't. So I was put on high duty. So there were, you know, there, there were a lot of things that um, were against me from that point of view, that I wasn't from Canberra, that I, I was from interstate, and I wasn't. At, at the perceived rank, and um, yeah, I got my fair share of um, you know bullshit, bullying, and catcalls and things like that. But again, you know that's yeah. adversity; it makes you stronger. But I, I my um, my boss at the time, I'd done my three years there, and, and technically I was due to go back to Sydney. And for the first time, they'd opened up liaison positions where you, in those days too, criteria was you had to be minimum rank of sergeant to to apply for um, yep. an overseas posting, and they opened it up. And I thought. I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring, the old proverbial, and I did, not really thinking that I'd get it, but I thought I'll try the process, and um, yeah. and, and and I went through, and it was a very different process than what I thought. Um, you know, I studied and did what I did because I just asked people that that had, were successful before me what they'd done, but and because and this was under Mick, Mick Palmer, and Mick was um, as a commissioner was very different in his approach um, to leadership, and I remember going for the interview and. It was a simple interview, um, just, you know, the, the boss of International at the time and another per, uh, person who I think was a representative of the association. And I was decked to the halls and everything. And they're like, come in, sit down, take your jacket off, you know, loosen your tie. He said, this is just a fireside chat. And um, right. and I'd um, just finished my degree at that stage and, um, and my degree at was in anthropology. And one of the questions they asked me at the time, and this was around the time of the Marbe decision, and they said to me, so I'm interested about your thoughts on Marbo and what what that might mean if you're asked about that when you're overseas. Because even though we go overseas as police officers, you know, we often get uh, sort of find ourselves in, in areas where you're talking about more, you know, broader geopolitical stuff. And I went, oh, OK. And I was lucky because I because I studied the anthropology and the other part of my degree was what was back then called Aboriginal Studies. And um, and I, I just rattled off what I knew, and um, mm. and and they were very impressed. And I, I remember going out thinking, oh well, you know, I, I think I did all right. Um, I know the process now, so next time I'll I really um, I really hone in. And I remember um, I, I rem it took a long long time for the decision to came out, and I actually thought I, I didn't get it because, as you know, when you don't get a job, 
Um, sometimes you're not even notified, or if you do, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you get an email and saying, you know, thanks, but no thanks. The silence tells you a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember I was over actually just finishing off the very last component of my degree, and I was, <laughs> I was sitting on the toilet at ANU, and the phone rang, and and I didn't know who it was. I just picked it up, and it was the boss of International, and he goes, oh, Grant, it's, his name was Dave Schramm. Dave Schramm here, I'd like to have a chat to you about, about overseas. And I went, oh, I said, can I call you back? And he's like, oh, oh, uh, okay. I said, well, just give me 10 minutes. He goes, okay. Uh, I, you, know, cause, uh, you know, people making noises and doing stuff, and I thought this isn't a good look. So I did what I had to do, got outside, called him back. And I remember the first thing he said, he said, Grant, he said, well, I got, first of all, I'll offer you congratulations on two fronts. And I went, oh, what's the first front? He goes, I've never been asked to call, call back before. And I said, oh, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting on the toilet. He goes, oh, well, <laughs> good choice. Anyway, they offered me the job. And uh, so I spent, I ended up spending three, nearly four years in, based in Los Angeles. And, right. and uh, in those days, there are only two of us in Los Angeles. And we covered um, pretty much the four Western provinces of Canada, the Kansas-Missouri line, which is the middle of the states, everything west, Alaska, and Hawaii, and um, and and really, really loved it. You know, um, really got grew in terms of uh, you know my my capability, my understanding, and that really drew me into want to do more in that space. My other postings were um, I did uh, two years up in Timor Leste. Uh, in uh, in 2010, the, the government had provided the AFP with about 80 million dollars. To enhance the um, the capacity building and training, and and this was at the time of the international de- deployment group where the AFP really expanded, and a, a lot of state police came on board, and um, and I, I think uh, when I was running that, yeah, we a good had fair few of my mates actually went over. Yeah, at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was quite a lot, and I think from around from memory, we had about five around five hundred odd people deployed offshore uh, at, at the height of it sort of around 2008 to sort of 2011. Um, so I did two years in, in Timor-Leste and then um, I did a, a year in Afghanistan. Um, and then uh, before I retired, I, I did, um, again, a bit over three years in, in Washington, but this time as the, the senior AFP representative, we had responsibility for everything from um, pretty much Greenland to the north all the way down to Argentina in the bottom. Um, I had people with me, of wow. course, but... Um, uh, but I, I love that type of work, and and you're right. There still aren't a lot of people that realise um, what the AFP does, and I, and I used to remember telling a lot of the state colleagues because they're always a little bit um, cautious in dealing with us. They wanted to have their own connections and things overseas, and and that's fine. You know, they were never dissuaded from doing that. But the problem was, you know, I'd I'd be in meetings or I get phone calls from people going, "Oh, we got some of your guys coming over," and I'm like, "Oh, you do?" and I'm like, this is news to me. Yeah, yeah, no, they're coming over. They um, like the NYPD would call and say, oh, they wanna, they wanna do a ride along um on the um on the boat and 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 do a ride along and and I'm like, oh, okay, can you give me some names? I I wasn't aware that they were coming over, which was not unusual. You know, you don't get told everything. Anyway, it turned out it was, you know, someone from Victorian police or whatever. But they just saw. <laughs> Australia and assume that they're one of yours. You know, the, yeah. most Americans yeah. think Australia is so small that we know everybody, <laughs> uh, and I go to great <laughs> lengths to say we don't. But um, so, 
you know, we had a lot of things that would happen like that. There were other instances where, you know, state police would be doing some work and they had contacts. And again, that's fine. But they'd often ring us because they had the relationship with us. And if they didn't know who the individuals were, you know, you know what it's like. It's just that yeah. that whole, you know, brother and sisterhood where they just want to check. They want to do their due diligence. Yeah. Is this okay? Are you comfortable with that? And what have you. Yeah. Um, but um, but the, the work that you do as an AFP officer in those areas is way more and above what you would get to do in Australia, i.e. that, you know, you're involved in some pretty complex matters. I mean, when I was in East Timor, I was security advisor to the to the Minister of the, the Interior. And when I was in Afghanistan, you know, I was the deputy head of the International Police Coordination Board. But I was also an advisor, um, you know, to equivalent to the Minister of Interior. So you, you're put in these positions where, you know, you just, you don't, always have your police brain on you have to look at more broader and, and yes. you know the afp started to, to do some really good uh, innovative programs on on you know leadership in that space which was really good and i was fortunate enough to do that before i went to um east timor and that at least gave me an idea of what i was getting into because if i hadn't have done that you know i i would have been pretty much you know in a tiz spinning on my head not knowing what to do um, and, and I really enjoyed that level of work. And um, a very interesting contrast to what the state and territory police mm. members actually even have as opportunities. So, just as a question, I guess, of your entry pathway into the AFP, is there different pathways, or, you know, when you joined, I suppose you can talk to it, but was, was there a different pathway to, i.e., ending up on the GD truck in Canberra versus the opportunities that you were able to harness? Yeah. Well, was, that a, was that a different entry sort of process for general duties versus the special duties? Or? No, not back when I joined. There is now. Um, they run specific uh, recruit programs for ACT policing as opposed to the, the national side. And it's warranted right. these days because they are two very different areas. But there's still no reason why... Uh, you can't move between either. Um, right. But the, the the general pathway is for those that do the GDs is to eventually move into uh, the national mm. side. Not all people, many people like to mm. stay in Canberra. But when I joined, it was it was different. Actually, there were two different pathways back then. It was you either joined the the AFP or you joined the protective service. Now there were two separate entities then, and the protective service is what you were alluding to earlier, Matt. You know the ones that did the guarding at Parliament House, or you know the yeah. the defence institutions, or you know the Governor General's place in Sydney, all that kind of stuff. And then there was the policing yeah. side, and it depended on when you did your exam and what mark you got as to where you went. I, I really oh, didn't okay. have any aspiration to want to be at the security guard, as my uncles call. So I <laughs> I wanted to do the AAP, and thankfully I got enough marks. That got me through to that side, um, but um, they're two very different entities now. Um, you know, yeah. although they're both now part of the AFP, they're, but they're still two very different entities. So the, the protective service still run their own recruiting programs, their own training, etc. Um, but there is there yeah. are opportunities now where you can migrate across, you know, all three of those areas here. It's just it's a sort of mind-boggling I guess for me to try and understand from what I've done and no doubt Milne's the same from the like the NT police probably even has less opportunities than what I had uh as as far as diverse role but yeah like uh, like when I was going through your your bio looking at you know having done everything from drug drug trafficking human trafficking child exploitation type investigative roles and then ending up in Afghanistan 
uh, leading the, the, the education of a, of a, a police force trying to reestablish itself in another mm. country. I'm like, how on earth? Like, that's such a diverse range of duty. Um, oh, absolutely. And it was never on my radar when I joined. You know, I, I, I was just happy to, to be in the, I mean, they could have sent me anywhere. I would have been happy because I, you know, I, I, I got in. And that was what I wanted yeah. to do. I mean, ironically, once I got in, then I got a call from Northern Territory saying, oh, you know, we're happy to offer you a position. And then the fireys <laughs> offered me one. It's like, great, you know, <laughs> too late. You know, and I'm, I'm a kind of loyal person. I thought, you know what? No, the AFP gave me the, the break. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with them. Um, yeah, right. and, and, I, and I like that very much anyway. You know, loyalty is, is, is big, you know, in terms of my value. And I'm very much about that with, with friends and, and colleagues or you know, when I when I do ambassador roles and things like that, if if I don't feel that there's a you know a, a loyalty element element there, um, I'll, I'll I'll move on. Yeah, yeah right. So, what was your favourite? Uh, I suppose most memorable might include stuff that was really horrible. Um, so, what was your? I suppose if looking back over your career, what what was what was your favourite deployment or posting? You know, there's so many, like, you know, we've just touched on, and they're, and they're all, they've all been wonderful. They've all had their challenges. They've all had their problems. Um, if I, I go back to the, I guess, the very first time where I was sort of thrust into um, into the the machine, the political machine, and I find in the AFP, uh, more broadly, we, we seem to be, or the organisation, and I'm talking back in the early 2000s. So things were changed markedly in the in the end of the 90s for the AFP. Um, you know, in in the political wheel, we, we sat under a ministry that was so far out of the the centre. Uh, you know, we weren't ever funded sufficiently. You know, we were there basically just to mop up things that went wrong. But then, in, if you remember mm. back in the 90s, especially when Sydney had the the massive heroin um, problem, and and then the Howard government uh, provided a lot of funding to the AFP um, for the national strategy on drugs, and um, and I I saw a marked elevation not only of our professionalism, and I'm not saying that it wasn't professional before, but because we were moving into areas that were all new, um, and, and you know a lot a lot of credit of this was to, to Mick Palmer and then later Mick Kilty. Um, where we the AFP became an organisation in the federal scheme of things that could get stuff done, and, and that's when the mm. AFP is at its best. You know, when it's when it's downtime and it's boring, it can be quite mis mischievous within the organisation. You know, boredom. But <laughs> when there's a crisis, um, I've you know, and I don't have any experience outside the AFP. But when there's a crisis, everything just comes together and people are focused and, and stuff gets done. And I'm talking about, you know, after 9-11 and the Bali bombings and the bombings in Jakarta, you know, I, I was in intelligence at that time and I, I was just amazed at how everything had just clicked and, and it didn't matter. People people were queuing up to want to go and do things. You know, we had the bushfires in Canberra. Uh, it mm. was just sort of like a, I, I guess, and I, it, it was a golden period for unfortunate times, but I saw the organisation almost... Um, mature over that that period of time, and of course, you know they've gone on leaps and bounds since then. But to go back to your question, I when I come back from Los Angeles, um, I you know I, I was one of the things the AFP didn't do well uh, is 
capitalize on when they spend a lot of money and educate and you know train people to go and have those high positions they bring you back and it's almost like you feel like you're punished because you've been on a junket that's that was what i was always yeah. i wasn't a junket <laughs> yeah. you know when you're dealing across time frames and you're working you know 14 16 18 hours a day because you you got your time you work in the time zone and then yeah. you work when australia reaches in but i I remember I got called into my boss's office and at that stage my boss was who my boss was in Los Angeles and um, and he, he was a lovely guy but he, he was very, very direct and abrupt and at the time the, the Australian newspaper had been running a series of um, really negative articles about uh, human trafficking and it was all human trafficking for prostitution yeah. and um, it had become a federal problem because a lot of focus was on immigration and, and their lack of flexibility and understanding and compassion and what have you. Um, and But the government of the, of the day had also brought in laws to address this and the AFP hadn't used the legislation in two years. So we we were under the pump. And I remember being called into the office and and um, my boss said, he threw this paper on the desk and he goes, can you, can you fix up this prostitution issue? And I'm like, what? I mean, I knew it had been going in the background, but I, I was actually on the cocaine team at the time because I'd been working in South, you know, South America and stuff, and cocaine was the the drug. And he goes, "Can you just go, go and fix this?" He said, "We we got a team of of three. Can you go in and 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 run that and and just you know get these journos off our back?" And I thought, okay, that's a pretty easy brief. Wow, shit! I had no idea what I'd walked into. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I thought I'd come in with my investigator hat on and we'd, you know, we'd set up what we needed to do, go out, do some jobs, you know, lock up some people. No, I had nothing to do with that. I spent probably two years writing briefs after briefs after briefs after, you know, p- questions on notice and political questions for politicians. And, and I'm like, oh, this isn't fun. Um, but it taught me a lot. And, and you know, I keep going back to that whole adversity thing. You know, I, I don't look at adversity as a negativity. I look at the opportunities in adversity. But that I guess that that role set me up down the track because I, I end up having a really, really great understanding of the political pressure. And I was only at like a sergeant level. So, and again, you know, normally you wow, don't experience they you a brief that. like that as a sergeant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. That's massive. Yeah. And then um, on the back of it, I end up writing a, um, a, a proposal. Um, well, I didn't write it. I had a, a policy officer there, but her and I sat down and rewrote it. And we ended up getting, um, I think, 40, 40 million from the government to set up this this team at this time, which ended up becoming the Transnational Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking Team. And we were able to go out and um, work with the state colleagues and, and make a bit of a dent in what was going on. But it really opened my eyes. You know, I, I sort mm-hmm. of got out of that, that narrow-minded what you do as a like a sergeant or a team leader working on investigations to looking at this massive big machine and having to be accountable for that. And I remember, you know, again, the internet wasn't big in those days. And I used to dread every Saturday because I'd go down and buy the Australian and I'd look for what the next article was. And I remember, um, you know, my uh, daughter at the time going, why, why, why do you do that? And I said, because this is going to determine what my week's going to be like because <laughs> I never knew yeah. what my week oh, would yeah. be like because whatever had come out that the media had written and um, and, and it was actually um, one of the journalists was Natalie O'Brien who's now Nick, Nick Caldas's wife and I, I got to know Natalie really well. Um, it was an adversarial relationship at first but, um, <laughs> but Natalie was only doing 
you know, the right thing because she was able to talk to the girls that were being trafficked. And it was it was horrendous. Um, that was great. I remember, you know, coming back from Afghanistan and the commissioner asked me, you know, oh, how was it? And I said, it's one of the toughest things I've ever done. And he kind of looked at me perplexed because um, he, he hadn't visited the 12 months that I was over there. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm brief. I, you know, I've got to do everything from the transactional day-to-day work on what we're doing around Afghanistan because we had people in, you know, three different parts. And I said, but then I'm also briefing General John Allen who ended up becoming the the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. military, and and uh, and the UN, and 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 ambassadors, and it was just the the whole political system that I got embroiled in it was it was very complex. But had not had I not had that exposure back in the two thousands, you know, I wouldn't have been prepared for that because I, I knew what I was getting into. I, I knew, pardon the parlance, so it was a shit sandwich. Um, but mm. but I also knew that. Um, yeah, um, as best I could how to navigate that. And I had not only good people from all around the world working for me, but I had good people who I actually worked for as well. And, you know, as a team, we really clicked. And then, of course, I, I my decision to retire after Washington was, that for me, that was one of the best jobs in the world. And um, for me mm-hmm. to have to go back to Canberra, and I, I had no aspiration in going any higher than, than what I was. And I just thought, you know what, it's, it's time to hand over the baton that, that somebody else, maybe with a bit more energy and some fresh ideas to come in. But, uh, yeah, I know I didn't really answer your question, but that. No, <laughs> that's uh, like, oh, man, I, I, I can't wrap my head around that diversity of, of expectations on you as a, like, as a single officer, you know, particularly down to sergeant level, getting given stuff like that to, to grapple it's, it's with as a political hot potato and, yeah. you know, a complex, you know, international problem. <laughs> Oh, I, I believe I, I still think the thinking was back then we we we'd just make it go away, and that was essentially what yeah. what I was told. But it couldn't go away when you got media drip feeding that, and it went over a year and a bit, you know. And and the the government was so attuned to what was going on politically. Mm. Um, and, and let's face it, you know, you can do you know all the drug work, what have you. But when you're talking in particular about women that are being exploited and children. Mm-hmm. The other component that many people don't realise that I had responsibility for back then was too was the the uh, child exploitation. So Australia is one of the few countries that has extraterritorial laws, which means, and it's the AFP are the only ones that have access to that legislation. So say you've got an Australian, and there were many that were either travelling overseas or living overseas and committed an offence against a child. If the local jurisdiction um, either didn't want to or couldn't prosecute it, then we could prosecute that back in Australia based on the evidence that you get mm-hmm. overseas. So and, or an um, offence in another country. In another country, yeah. And, um, yeah, right. and, and you know, I, I mean, I know you guys would know, but I don't think the general public still know that the the amount of Australian men in particular that travel overseas to do that is just frightening. Yeah. And, you know, it still makes me sick to the core thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, and as a toll on you personally and your team, like to be absorbed in that day-to-day as your job, uh, like, God, that's um, that's tough. Work. Yeah. Well, but, you know, I mean, I had the human trafficking and the child exploitation side at that time, but the AAP didn't have any legislation for the criminality. What we were is we were triaging. So I had three people, two of those which were, were, were civilian non-sworn people, pretty much there were four of us every day just going through video after video after image, 
triaging it because we didn't have the authority to be able to say yes this is child exploitation so we yeah. we triaged it. it sort of thing. yeah we yeah. triage it mostly looking for anything where there was a potential child in immediate harm's way because you know there's right. a, a category a tiered system but then we'd have to send it to acma the australia media corporation and they were the ones that said yes you know this is this is child porn as they'd called it back then yeah, yeah. um but i mean and and to give people that are listening an idea yeah i um, sort of evolved in and out of that over my whole career but when i was in washington um NECMEC, which is the national um center for exploited children is, is based just out of Washington, D.C., and NECMEC uh, are the, um, the entity that do all now do the triaging for the AFP. And I remember when Joe Hockey came in as the ambassador, one of the first things I did is took Joe out there, and uh, and I remember them saying, do you want us to give the sugar-coated briefing or give the hard briefing? I said, give the hard one. And um, when they started showing, you know, it, albeit the images were pixelated and things and, some, and what was happening around the world, um, I remember Joe just leaning forward and hitting his head on the table going, why aren't we doing enough on this? And then when they gave the statistics mm. that on average, and so this would have been, what, 2016, I think. Mm. around I think it was in 2016, the NECMEC had referred about 18,500 um, well, 18, IP hits on Australia where people had accessed you know, um, child porn. And across the globe, Australia has one of the highest highest predilections for that, which which is, you know, quite sad, quite disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, that's um, I was gonna, I was gonna say, Grant, obviously, you know, you've had some support um obviously with all these roles. How did your um your wife Kate go with you dealing with all this sort of stuff in your family? Yeah, well I, I mean Kate Kate and, and she, I've got to, she'll listen to this, so she doesn't, she only, only goes by Kate. She used to go by Kate only when she got in trouble from my mother. So everyone calls yeah. her Lordy because her last name's <laughs> yeah. Lord. So yeah, she course, goes, yeah. don't ever introduce me as Kate. T- tell everyone call me Lordy. I'm okay. So, um, so Kate's my second wife. So um, I remember when we met back in um, around 2009 and we were talking about things. I remember one of the things she said, you know, I know what you do and I know the jobs you do and where you've been overseas. And the only thing I'll say is um, the only time I'll put my foot down is, is you know, don't go to Afghanistan. <laughs> Three years, two, oh. two years later, I was in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> she, she always referred to herself um, both, you know, well, mostly what the, my time in the AP where she was a married single mother. Yeah. And that's very true. And that's very true for a lot of spouses that, that yeah. marry, you know, if they're not in the job, and there are many, many are, um, but if they're not, uh, I guess they don't have an understanding of the fact that, you know, it's not like an eight to eight to four job. You know, you might you might get paid for eight to four or whatever shift you're doing, <laughs> um, but there are very few roles where it's hard not to be doing things outside. And, and I know... For me, and by the time I'd met Kate, I'd already become commander. So you kind of sell your soul when you get to that level because you don't have a working day. You're not there's no nothing in your contract that says you come to work at eight and you finish at four. You get paid for that, but mm-hmm. there's an expectation. Um, and I took that very seriously, um, and I took it very seriously for a number of reasons because I would much. And I always used to say to people, especially those that work for me, you know, I I, I was the kind of person who would try and give them as much freedom as they could to do what they did. But I said, don't ever fall into the mistake, one, of thinking that I don't care because it's not that. Um, and I said, don't fall into the mistake of trying to make a decision um, 
based on what you think you know. It's always better to come and, and if you, if we can pack a scrum. You know, if it was a, a major incident that needed immediate action, well, different, you know, but um, I always encourage them to, to, you know, reach out if they weren't certain, but at the very least, just let me know. And, it, yeah. you know, in these days, it was as simple as a text or something like that. Um, just so I didn't get caught out when I went into work in the morning, but also too, if something did go wrong, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't a surprise to me. And early on in my career, that happened a few times, mm-hmm. especially when I was in his team or I'd, I'd get a phone call at 2 a.m. in the morning. What are you doing about this? And I'm like, about what? Oh. You know? Oh, well, yeah. your people have been out and one of them's had a Maxon on a motorbike and, and, and crashed into the team of I went, oh, I didn't know anything about it. And then I got, I got berated because I didn't know anything about it. And I yeah. said, well, yeah. I, you know, I, they haven't called me. They've clearly done what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Although I kind of roused yeah. on them afterwards where they've yeah. called it into Canberra. I said, guys, you've got to let me know. I said, I look like a goose <laughs> and the, the boss is tearing my ass out because I don't know what's going on. So <laughs> we've all been there. Um, but it, it was yeah. more it was more like just let, let, let me know. So, of course, you know, you're always getting phones were going off or you're getting calls in the middle of the night or and it was worse when we we're in washington like i said you know yeah. almost opposite time frames you'd have your yeah. your work day in the embassy and then australia wakes up and then you know they're reaching in with the um eighteen thousand mile screwdriver wanting to to do things yeah. but you manage it One of the very obvious things in your backstory, Grant, is sport and extreme sport at that. Could you give us a bit of a rundown on some of your sporting achievements? But I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in is how how you use that to um, balance the madness of work uh, and, and also fit it in because obviously you're in very, you know, hectic work roles and, and to operate at an elite sporting level obviously takes a lot of commitment too. But I'm interested to to understand how you use that as an outlet, if that's what happened, yep. or if that's even why you did it, and and how that helped you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because that's exactly what it turned out like. Um, I mean, when I like I said earlier, when I was a young boy, it was mainly I, I played rugby league because that's what all my mates did, and then at, at school, you know, you'd do the basketball and what have you. I would like to think that I. I I wasn't very good. I was probably okay. Like I said earlier, I was a coach's nightmare because I, I had all the physical attributes. And I remember when I was playing rugby league where they, you know, they encouraged me and they, they brought me into the representative teams. It was, you know, Canterbury Banks down the, the Bulldogs in those days. But I um, I just didn't have what it what it took. And it was similar to when I was in Hawaii. And like I said, I just seemed to be in the right place at the right time. It's almost like if you, you, know, you believe in a meta universe, there were periods where, Things just happened, and I didn't know why. But it wasn't until I was about 16 that I um, sort of stumbled across the idea that uh, working out felt good. Now, I didn't know. I, I, I was grateful. One of my teachers at school, who's still a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Hadfield, Peter was an Olympian, uh, went to, I think, two Olympics for the decathlon, competed against Daly Thompson. I think he, he won a silver medal in the Commonwealth Games. It was Daly Thompson that beat him. And, um, and, and Peter was... Um, uh, you know, something that I aspired to do. And and all as I knew was that when I went, and we used to have a little gym at school, and that's where I used to work out. But when I was there, I just felt like I'd found a home. I'd found a place where nothing else in the world mattered. You know, I could just 
consume and immerse myself in that. And, and that's what I tend to do with a lot of things. You know, I then started buying magazines, you know, like the, the pumping iron and things like that, because I just wanted to learn more about it. I, I didn't have any idea at the time, you know, um, what that was doing and, and why it was happening, but it made, it made me feel good. And that pretty much from the age of 16, I, I've continued that pathway. And I remember back then people would say to me, you know, well, what happens when you stop doing all this stuff and you end up fat and this and that? And I said, well, I didn't understand. Why, why would I stop? There's no need to stop. You know, there's varying degrees. And I know as I get older now, you know, I have to reduce things because my, my body's so beat up. But it actually became my saviour. You know, I had the, the, quite the dysfunctional family. Um, there was a lot of pressure on me um, at home and uh, and that was my that was my my sanctuary and you know it only needed to be 30 minutes a day which is what we had at lunch but I remember always feeling so good after it when the endorphins kicked in and as I went you know through my career with you know track and field um, bobsled um, you know I was fortunate enough to go to Scotland represent Australia in Highland Games and then doing all the the, the, the strongman stuff um, that that was my grounding element, and I only said this the other day to my, um, yeah, to my my psychologist. I I said I feel like my sport is um, a form of mindfulness, and, and she goes, well, it is. It's called active mindfulness, yeah. and mm. she goes, you know, people often think that you know mindfulness is where you got to sit in a quiet room and put your headphones on and do your meditation and all that. And I said, look, I really suck at that. I do it, but I'm not good at it. I said, but I can go to a gym or I can go for a run and nothing else matters in the world because I'm just in the moment. And, yeah. you know, when I talk about that, other, so many other people go, absolutely. Um, I, I remember after I was first diagnosed yeah. with PTSD and I, you know, I, I saw some psychs and they said, you know, you, you need to get into mindfulness. So have you ever thought about knitting or crocheting? I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, and they said, well, uh, you know, something like uh, reading or um, what about airplane models or things? I'm like, well, I used to do it as a kid, but no, I chose running. And I, I you know, I, right. I was the kid at school that running. Yeah. You're too big for running. Well, tell me, tell me about it. Body. But, yeah. and I, again, I didn't do it deliberately, Matt. What happened is uh, before, you know, when I was at my worst, I, um, I, I just intuitively started to jog. And I, right. I mean, I started at 2Ks. That, that hurt me. Um, yeah. But again, what I found was, you know, aside from the gym work, uh, just that that sort of 20 minutes out there, again, it just centered me. I always, you know, for, for a while, all the things that were going through my head just went away. And when I came, when I got back home, it just helped me be as stable as I could in that period. But like most things in life, I couldn't just do it on average and I end up, <laughs> going through and end up running a couple of half marathons and then ran ran the Marine Corps marathon in the US um, while I was oh. over there. Um, very slowly, but I finished it. Um, but that, that's also oh. part of that, you know, continually challenging yourself. Um, yeah. and, and, hey, did, and one thing I'm interested in is back when uh, after my sort of, what I call it, my moment, uh, and, you know, I sort of spiraled downhill pretty badly uh, a, a, a couple of years ago now, a year and a half ago. But one of the things that I got warned about was some of the some of the activities that I'd picked back up that I'd probably given away for a long time and adopted other uh, not so um, uh, well endorsed coping mechanisms. Mm. I'll leave it at that. Mm. Um, 
one of the things they did warn me about though was destructive uh, mm. training. Like, so I started riding my bike again, mm. and but I was doing it to an unachievable time frame mm. for what I'd set myself, and I was I was literally abusing myself mm. by yeah. um, uh, out of you know anger and whatever else. Mm. But it was a form of yeah, it was literally a form of uh, you know. It, w- it was a destructive rather than constructive activity for yeah. me. And I, I'm just wondering, like, with the crazy stuff that you've done, have you ever been warned about that or has that ever been an issue for you? Probably more so now as I get older than what it was back then. But um, but I did I, – um, I was a bit like you. I subconsciously knew that I was punishing myself yeah, um, gonna say. And, and, and punishing mm-hmm. myself – Sorry, that that's probably exactly what I yeah, yeah. that's what I was warned of yeah. by yeah. by my treating team yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah, because what we do is, uh, you know, for us, if we declare that we've got a problem and then someone else has to fix it, well, that that's counterintuitive to what we're trained to do, because we're trained to fix things, we're trained to make things happen. But when it happens to you, and I always found myself frustrated because I'm like, I can't, I could, I could never seem to get on top of this. Uh, because I, I yeah. believed like anything, there was a beginning and there was an end, you know, I, I'd come to terms where the beginning was and, you know, I mean, and that, and that's fluid, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on where the end was. And I now know that there is no end. The end is mm-hmm. basically getting to a point, And this is, this is my conclusion where I can manage what I have now, whereas, you know, I was reading about people who, you know, read my book because I'll tell you how I was able to um, cure myself of PTSD and all this. And, yeah. you know, congratulations if you can do that. I'm highly sceptical now with what I know. But the, it's like what you were talking about, Matt. There's no, there's no one pathway in how people deal with their mental health issues. And, and this is where I get a bit annoyed, in particular in Australia, with, with what's happening in law enforcement, first responder, the military, where everything seems to be a, a vanilla-coated program. Um, and it's not because you take away the individuality of it. You know, what what you've done to to overcome your issues, mainly what you've done, what other people have done, we're all different, you know. Exactly. We may be able to, you know, a, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist may be able to put it into a, a bucket or a, a process, but it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, I always say to people, we we're you know it's a double-edged sword for us in law enforcement you know we we we're all we were taught about the intuition and the gut feeling and you got to go mm-hmm. with that gut feeling and you got to go what's right with you and if that's what makes you feel good and and it is a little bit uh counterintuitive or or destructive that that's fine you know you need to do what you need to do in the moment to overcome where you are depending where you are on that mental health continuum but what i found was that understanding those those types of behaviors and what they can lead to can cause you trouble but when you're in the midst of um a, a, you know either you know a meltdown an episode whatever you want to call it you're going to do what you need to do and i always believe that and, and i did you know i i went the alcohol way i went the self-medicating way um but that's you know that was such a, a negative thing in my family i didn't want to stay in that pathway and i, I went back to what i knew and that was by, by by movement, doing some type of movement somewhere, doing something because that is where I could gain the most amount of clarity that I could for what was going on around me. And I, you know, I don't unless it's really really dangerous behaviour, 
you know, that can lead to to harm or injury. And I always encourage people, it doesn't matter what it is that you do. If it's making you feel good and it's not harming anyone and it's not immediately harming you, do it. Because, you know, we're, yeah. we're intelligent people. We, we work it out. And when I went on the the running pathway, I was told, you know, you're, I was about 125, 30 kilos. I'm like, do you you really think this is a good idea? And I said, you know what? If, if it means I end up with a knee replacement, so what? But if I can if I can start to feel normal again by doing this, I'm going to keep doing it. Do it. And that's 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 the rationale that I use behind that. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean, you, and you also do talk about failure and success sort of forming, I, I guess, your outcomes and using those failures to... Uh, I, I guess drive those successful moments, and you can't really have success without mm. failures. But do you see a combination of how you've adapted those philosophies that I guess you've had in your professional career and how you've approached work, mm. and and no doubt um, other aspects of your life? But do you see, or I suppose, can you explain how you've adapted that mm. to grappling with PTSD? Mm. Absolutely, and and. Again, you know, a great question. See, we're taught from a very young age that failure is not good, and and we grow up with that all through our life. I mean, we're we're all by the time we get to high school, we, we're fearful of failing. And mm. No one wants an, an F on an assignment at school or to get forty percent in your ex- well. No, it's not all. I know I had mates that didn't really care, but the majority don't because you know we <laughs> we want to be successful. So we're we're brought up from a very early age to think that that failure is bad and failure can be bad. But what we're not taught about is the opportunities that failure presents. And mm. and this didn't really crystallize with me until I started playing football in America. And, and this is where, you know, Americans are great. And my coach at the time, a guy called Dick Tomey, who I think he, he only passed away last year. Dick used to talk about that. He used to talk about cel- celebrating adversity. Not not celebrating the fact that, you know, you, you just might have got your pants pulled down in a football game or what have you, but celebrating the fact of the, the opportunity that what that presents in terms of what, what you're going to learn about what you did or didn't do and how you're going to take that and improve yourself to be the best person that you can be because the the underlying I mean I know in the you know in the college football system over there it's all about, you know, people think it's all about getting people into the, the professional sports. It's not. I think it's about mm-hmm. Certainly in football, I think there's only about one one point four percent of people that play football in the college get to go to the NFL. So you've got ninety ninety eight percent of people that don't do that. It's about making you a better person, making you a better human, and preparing you, um, you know, for life for life's challenges once you leave the the comfort of the classroom, and and that's the attitude that I started to to take. So yeah, when I when I'd fail it, and I failed at a lot of things, um, a lot of things, and I even talk about the failure of my attempt to, to, to take my life. And I don't I don't say it in a flippant manner, but I, I say that I, I turned that around. I could have, like I did for a while, got stuck in the, you know, in the in the negativity of it all and the woe me. Um, and then again, the, the pathway that ended up coming for me out of that that I hadn't planned um, took me somewhere where I could use that, like a lot of, like we're all doing here, to help others. Mm. So it, it's trying to find you know what what it is that you can take away from an actor that, that fails, and I'm you know I'm not sure. Last year I um and you know I mean I haven't been physically well. There's so many comorbid things going wrong with me. You know after my um you know my my diagnosis, but 
I wanted to um, for to do an event last year at um, and it was, it was actually that gov- the governor general graciously gave us his facility. So the idea was to pull a ten ton fire truck to wait, raise awareness on. Um, I think it was it was uh, was it World Mental Health Day, yeah. and um, yeah, right. we did all our planning and you know I, I was comfortable. We'd done done everything right, and um, I'd done the test on the on on the pull the day before and moved it easy. And I thought oh, I've got this nailed. Um, and it's often the smallest things, you know, that, that get in the way. And I remember it was live on TV, uh, which I said I'd never do again. Uh, the only time, two times I've failed things have been on live on TV, um, is which right? is not fun. Um, but, you know. Start- That's why I'll never do this live. <laughs> uh, never say never, mate. You just never know. Um, and, of course, I, I, you know, there were people there. I had friends, family, ex-colleagues and what have you. And it was great. And I, I was moving it like it was nothing. And got about halfway down the track, or about 40 metres down the track, and all of a sudden the thing started to slow. And then, boom, it just stopped, and I couldn't get it moving. And I remember mm. going, not again, here we go. You know, the last one, you know, I did where that happened was on the old Kerry Ann show back on the midday show back in the day. And I thought, and I was so deflated. What we hadn't realised when we had it surveyed is that there's an actual culvert just right where it, stuck and we couldn't see it by the eye but it was enough where it dipped and the wheels got stuck in a culvert and i couldn't get the thing out of it yeah and i remember thinking great you know this is a failure but then i the um the governor general actually had a discussion with him you know shortly afterwards and he goes um how do you feel i said i'm disappointed i'm disappointed i didn't get it you know he said but don't be disappointed about not doing it you know congratulate yourself for having a go and, and doing it right. He said, there's no disappointment. He said, I'm sure the disappointment will, will only make you work harder next time. And I thought, there it is again. That's what Coach used yeah. to say in the in the States. So when I did the media stuff afterwards, that's what I talked about, that, you know, it's actually, right. you know how we sort of say in the mental health, it's, it's okay not to be okay. I say, yeah. it's actually okay to fail. No one deliberately sets out to fail, but use it and use it from the positive. And I explained that to people when they said to me, you know, how do you feel? And I said, well, I didn't get what I wanted. It, it didn't work out what I wanted. But what I can tell you now is it's going to make me go away and work harder and, you know, train harder and look at what I can do differently. And I've learned, you know, to be more specific when we do surveys and things like that. So, you, you know, you flip that paradigm and that that's what I learned from my time in, in the in the US. And that's how you learn too from failing, you know, ultimately. Well, no one learns from success. No, exactly. Uh, One of my best mates, even to my kids, I think he said it once. He, he said, "Don't ever expect a compliment from me because who? No one benefits from compliments." He said, "You only benefit from feedback about what how you could do it better." <laughs> like, like oh. every, everyone has, everyone has fear. Like, I, like even my kids, and I just say, "Look, just have a crack." I, say, I don't care if you, you know come first or last. If you have a crack, and I know you've tried, had a go. Mm. That's all I expect of yeah. you. And enjoy yeah. yourself. Yeah. It's amazing, you know. Yeah, and they hey. and they go and have a go. Yep, and and that, and that's all it is. And um, you know, I, I say to my kids, you know, be careful about aiming for mediocrity because you just might achieve it. Mm. You know, have it, have it. You know, yeah, put yourself out point. there and yeah. don't be afraid yeah. ever to to put yourself out and have a go. I said, what what's the worst that can happen? It yeah. might not, it might not happen, but you'll learn a lot out of it. Yeah, and you just yeah. never mm-hmm. know. No, you just never know what will happen. Mm. Surprise yourself. Yeah, actually, I was talking, I was talking to a mate of mine just recently about my career and that was one of the things that I definitely mentioned to him is I, I held myself back because I because of fear of failure mm. and you know I didn't back myself I didn't back my own abilities or capabilities 
when I probably should have and, and other opportunities undoubtedly would have arisen for me. But I was always, other people will get through that, but I, there's no way I will. And I'd talk myself out of it before I'd even tried. And I, I, that plagued me and, and probably still does to a degree, but mm. it's, that's an attribute of myself that I hate. Mm. And um, I, I think it's only now uh, that I'm starting to realize how, you know, how, how crazy that has been to, to, to live like that and not, mm. you know, not extend yourself to that point of, you know, not getting it perfectly right mm. or not or failing altogether and then learning from it. And um, I just, uh, I literally said to him, I wish I had told my 18 year old self that or even younger, mm. you know, just, just give a give it a go because people are not going to laugh at you for not being perfect at it. No, that, w- and even if they do, it's probably your mates laughing at you anyway. So who yeah. cares? And, <laughs> and it's their problem, not yours. You know, but, but like no, we spoke about just before we started, you know, I mean, could you have seen yourself five years ago s- sitting there now doing what you're doing <laughs> and doing it really well and confidently? No, no I bet you, well, I bet you couldn't. Well. So you know, you've learned no. from that. And sure, yeah. it didn't happen, you know, during your career in the police, but you put yourself out there and you're doing something that is completely, I, I mean, I'm assuming, outside of your comfort zone, but yeah. you're killing it, mm. you know? Yeah, and, and you're well, the thanks. same, Millie, with <laughs> what you're doing, you know? I mean, we're, we're all like that. If someone had said to me, even 10 years ago, you know, you think yeah. you'd be sitting with a, a couple of other grumpy old coppers doing a podcast. I'm like, well, I wouldn't have known what a podcast was, but I would have said <laughs> exactly. probably not. No, I say that. I don't, I don't yeah, mean well. the grumpy bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's all about the journey. It's all about the journey you take, and um, and it says you just sometimes, you know, especially when you come down with things like say men, um, mental health, PTSD, and then you lose your you know identity and you don't know who you are again. But then you've mm. got to start not really establish yourself, but you're just trying to find who you are again. Mm. And you have to put yourself out there, and you will fail, and mm. you will learn from those failures, and then all of a sudden, then things start to click, and then you start you start meeting people, and it's like, but. They're not people that, um, like I've met a lot of people in the last year and I consider them they're my friends now because mm. what we've been through and what we've discussed, not everyone's on their own, own different journeys. Um, mm. And now we're all on this journey together. It's it's amazing um, what mm. we're achieving at the moment. Yeah. And, and you know, that's a really good point. We're all on our different journeys and, and it is, it's different for everybody and, and as I said earlier, that's the bit that really, really grates on me where you get forced into a, you know, a vanilla system trying to, you know, and to, to subscribe mm-hmm. by that to, to, mm-hmm. to do what you need to do. And, and it's, it's not the same. But then, you know, you've coalesced the people to the common cause. And, and that, that's what it's all about. And that's what life's about. It's certainly what mm-hmm. work's about. That's what leadership's about. You know, no one likes to work for someone who it's my way or the highway. That doesn't work. And we've, we've, I'm <laughs> no, sure we've all, all been with people like that. So some of the other stuff that you've done, Grant, uh, I'm sure more recently, and uh, you go back a long way supporting mental health awareness and and the like. But one of the things that I've seen that you are involved in is the Integra service dogs mm. and the mm. the uh, the dog side of things. And I I just thought I'd mention it from a observational point of view. I I go to a uh, PTSD group each week that has a you know it's police, ambos, fireys, military mm. um, uh, group, but one of the one of the ex army guys in there didn't start with a dog, but got a dog in his time there, and it has, it's been quite interesting to watch how that's changed him mm. 
you know, positively. And, you know, we, we all look forward to him walking in with his dog now, particularly when, uh, you know, when she's allowed to go off, off lead mm. during our session. Cause you know, it's, it, it, everyone smiles. It doesn't matter whether they like dogs or not, but as soon as you see her off lead and, you know, jumping around looking for a pat that she's not allowed to get while she's at work, mm. it's, it brings a smile to like, it, it lifts the room. Um, Absolutely. Just that one, just that one dog. And, um, you know, hearing him talk about how he now lives his life with the dog and, you know, takes mm. her everywhere and, and there's certainly challenges with it, but gee, I tell you, um, what an amazing thing, like for you to be, uh, you know, part of, mm. uh, and seeing those sort of outcomes for people that really need it. It's, it's, and that's, you know, that's just one of the things that you're involved in on the side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very important work. And, and you know, I was I was so humbled when they asked me because it it wasn't until I started my own journey. I mean, I I knew of support dogs and things like that, but I, I really didn't mm. know. Yeah, you know, I knew they were helpful. Uh, and I, I'm talking mostly back in the day when I was younger. Where remember you had the blind dogs, people that were blind would have the dogs yeah. and and things like that. But where, where it really came home to me is. You know, I was I was fortunate enough that the AFP allowed me to do this, but I ran two mental health conferences um, for law enforcement police when I was in Washington, and one one of the the, the first group of people that I I got to meet were a group in Canada. Um, Canada, I believe, are far more advanced than what we are in Australia. Um, but th- these um, the folk was husband and wife team, and they 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 then were running the Badge of Life program up there, and um, and Bill who's a lovely guy and his wife, and we're still friends today, but we, we went to their offices and um, we were meeting with them and um, you know, we're all talking around the table and everything. And uh, we were there for about an hour and a half. And then as, as we concluded and we got up to sort of shake hands in it, this um, dirty big Alsatian came out from under the table. I didn't even know he was <laughs> under there. And he kind of put me back at first because, you know, he was a, a big dog and, um, and his name was Ewo. Iwo Jima, Iwo had his own, he was a rock star. He had his own webpage and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, um, right. Bill, Bill uh, had been, um, he, he was, he'd been wrestling an armed offender. He was shot 16 times and he should have, he should have died, but he didn't. He survived. And, um, and to this day, they'd never caught the person that shot him. So, you know, you could imagine the issues, but it was Bill that introduced me um, to the dogs and, and told me, you know, how, how Iwo had changed his life and what it meant to him. And then when I'd come back to Australia, um, Bill had to go and have a knee, knee replacement. And um, I remember um, him, him telling me afterwards that um, he wanted to have Iwo in the, in the surgery with him, but the hospital wouldn't allow it. In Canada, they, mm. they do that. In America, they actually do some of that. But what happened was... Um, and as you know, there's always an issue now going under anaesthetic, you know, if you've had, you know, PTSD mm-hmm. or a traumatic event. And and Bill started to go into a, um, I think it was like a cardiac situation. Um, and they had to stop the surgery. Um, you know, he had his knee taken out. But it was, um, to cut the story short, when he went back in, he, he got permission for Iwe to go in with him. So they dressed Iwe up and put him there. And all as Iwe had to do, <laughs> Bill... Bill was under anaesthetic, but he said that he knew intuitively because whenever Bill was not well, Ewe would come up and put his paw on his leg, and that was the indication mm-hmm. that yeah. I, I know that things aren't well. And then that was always, you know, brought brought Bill into the moment and got him, you know, out of where he was going. And that's all the dog did. They had him up there on a separate gurney beside him, and he had his 
pull, I think, on Bill's leg the whole time during the surgery, and it was wow. a complete success. Um, and yet here in Australia, you know, we still struggle with people that do have service dogs, you know, getting access to, you know, not allowing them to take them into, you know, uh, areas because of health issues. We're, we're yeah. really quite behind. I mean, in the US, every flight I caught when I would travel usually had a dog on the plane and they were usually yeah. a, a right. service dog. Not, not, not sitting, you know, in a cage underneath, actually sitting. And most on of the, chair. by law, yeah. they've got to do that on buses, on transport, restaurants shopping right. centers um and we're not that far advanced and i hope we will get yeah. that way but yeah. the benefit of um of like what integra are doing is just unbelievable and um mm. and i know so many people where it's changed their lives to never thought they'd have a therapy dog but now can't live without mm. them yeah, it is it's it is a bit unfortunate to hear his um experiences too with because mm. his dog's an integra dog and um you know, he's got all the identity, like the yeah. uh, authority cards yeah. and everything. And but he's yeah, he still, still gets questioned going into restaurants yeah. and you know people people saying, well, unless it's a, a guide dog, it's not allowed in and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It, it's interesting because I know Milne and I have chatted a lot about. Um, well, I know Milne Milne's far more across it than I am, but other jurisdictions around the world, what they're doing for first responder and police um, mental health. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear from both of you, really, what what your thoughts are on what other jurisdictions are maybe doing better, or 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 are we actually leading the way in any areas in how we're managing things? Um, well, look after or looking after our people. Yeah, yeah. look, I, when um, I spoke to Grant last, and then I did a bit of research on um, Canada and the US, and obviously what they're doing um, with mental health and that, and. They are so far ahead of us, it's not funny at the moment. That's um, Canada, is it? Yeah. It, it, you're absolutely right. What um, I, I mean, look, if we want to look at Australia, in our immediate region, we do well. But look at the region that we're in. You know, yeah. I, I mean, we, there are a lot of you know, developing nations around us. But if, yeah. if you hold Australia to the rest of the world, no. It starts yeah. at the top. It starts at the, the lack of political engagement or, or the, the, the false the false pretense of political engagement. Um, there's mm. too many barriers that are th- that are put in the way of, and even what we're doing here, why the three of us are together about the heart-to-heart, you know. Well, mental health, it's, it's not a federal issue, it's a state issue or it's a, a council issue or it's whatever. No, it, it doesn't matter, really. Uh, in Canada, uh, they have, you know, some fantastic laws. They were one of the first to... Um, you know, to bring in presumptive legislation. In fact, the the, um, the federal politician who I'm still friends with today, a guy called Todd Doherty, who who introduced all that and shepherded that through. Um, you know, that that was a that was a kicker, and I mean, it wasn't great, but it, it, but it was it was you know very innovative in terms of what they what they did, and the, the amount of difference that that meant to people, specifically with PTSD, who could who didn't have to go and get a diagnosis, who just put their hand up and said, "I'm suffering." Right, here's the suite of packages that you can have. Start your treatment and we'll worry about the other things down the track. Whereas here, as we know, especially when you're dealing with adversarial insurance companies, it's all about you as the individual having to actually prove that you've got, you know. Yeah. So it's that, that, that sort of presumption of innocence that we worked with in, in the police is, is placed on us. But the fact that there's, uh, you know, in Canada, there's there's a national system. In the UK, with their Oscar Kilo program, you know, that's the national well-being model that was they were funded for, 
And they've got 40, I think 46 different jurisdictions or 44 where they all have their own police forces, but they all come together seamlessly under this banner. They all contribute. They all, and they've got this fantastic research-based database that that I leverage off all the time. And uh, and the guy that runs it, Andy, Andy used to be the chief constable of Lancashire Police. In fact, I'm catching up with him in Canada next month. And, um, and Andy's now retired, but... Uh, there's such a wealth of information and a wealth of knowledge there. Um, they have a, a nationally coordinated program. You know, I mean, for God's sake, we still can't yeah. we still can't catch a train around the country because we've got different, you know, <laughs> yeah. the legacy of yeah. the, prior to, to federation. Like, like I was going to say, Grant, like even um, just looking through like the Canadian government, like their response to first responder mental health, like they spent like was it uh, ten million dollars on internet based uh, CBT therapy, obviously cognitive. Mm-hmm cognitive behaviour therapy, and um, mm-hmm. they spent $10 million on uh, mental health for all Canadian mental police on new recruit to develop mental health wellness and remedy strategies mm-hmm. for emergency response uh, organisations, mm-hmm. and obviously these new recruits. They spent $20 million federal investment on the National mm-hmm. Resource uh, Research Consortium yep. um, into PTSI. And um, I even I was saying to Matt the other day, like even support for families, like... Um, mm-hmm. Like even a member, like um, who's played a critical role in first responder, like and connecting like uh, Canadians, especially there, mm. they get a um a one off payment of uh, three hundred thousand dollars from a memorial grant program mm. as a one off lump sum. And it's like mm. that's unbelievable what um Canadians get, and obviously they're much bigger than us, of course. But um, mm. it's amazing how much support and resources actually put into uh, their first responders. Yeah, and, and see, I always default default to the Canadian model because being part of the Commonwealth. Their legal framework, their you know their their social framework is very similar mm. um, to what we do, and there's no reason. Yeah, I mean, just in the province of Ontario uh, alone, and this isn't a law enforcement thing, but if you're you're one of the um, NGOs that seeks funding from the the state province, what they did a number of years ago is said that's that's fine. You know, we're not going to ever stop anybody, but what we want to do is before before we grant you money, we want to see what your business case is, what your plan is, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they said, here you go. We've developed a website. So what you do is, you know, when you make an application for funding, we want your your program up on that website, which every person in the province of Ontario has the, the ability to be able to read and look at. And um, mm-hmm. and I remember when that happened and I was, look, I mean, some of them were just fantastic documents. Others were yeah. like, you know, the old search warrant affidavits at, we did back in the day, written on the back of a coaster in the pub and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, but I think that level of accountability, rather than just yeah. you know throwing money out, and I know here you know in Australia, uh, I think at last count there's about three and a half thousand you know, non non for profit areas involved in just PTSD alone. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I, I don't ever want to discourage people from doing that, but boy, if we could harness that, and if we yeah. could we could coordinate that. And could you imagine how yep. effective that would be just for PTSD alone? I'm not talking more broadly mental yeah. health, um, yeah. but we, we don't do that. One of the things that you mentioned there about the support for the families, and that's that's one of the big things that I guess has really, and still to this day, brings me undone, is looking at the effect on my kids and my wife mm-hmm. uh, because of what I've gone through and am going through, mm-hmm. um, and, and even going back over the years of me sort of unravelling. But I'm still shocked at the lack of opportunities and options they've got as my support network mm. and and them as individuals mm. to to get through this process. And even one of the one of the big bigger groups that's that's out there to like as a 
advertised as a support mechanism for us. Uh, I rang them out of desperation one day thinking, you know, they're one of the biggest ones I know. I, I really need urgently to get help for one of my family members. Mm. And they just said, sorry, our funding parameters don't allow it. And then when I, when I asked them a bit further about it, I went, well, can, I, can we do it under me? And they said, well, because I'd been medically retired officially for like a week. Mm. And they said, sorry, we can't even afford that to you anymore. The only thing we can give you is, is career transition um, because it, it didn't, didn't fit their funding model. Yeah. And they're one of the really big ones that everyone knows about. Mm. And I just couldn't, I could not believe that whatever funding model that their parameters have, have given them is, is terrible. So, yeah. um. Yeah, it's really, see that it time is really and time again. Matt. Yeah, and and I agree. When I at my worst, my my wife ended up when I was in Afghanistan because she was frustrated. Um, I think she was only contacted once by the AFP when I was over there, and um, you know yeah. we, we we were attacked by the Taliban. We we were under threat all the time. Um, she, in desperation, found a group of um, of wives, mostly wives in the US, and she and that's where she was mm. getting all her information from. When I was at my worst. That's who she went through, and who they directed her to areas that, that you know, in the US that, that could support this because there was nothing in Australia. So, mm. yeah, totally agree. Mm. And it's not like yeah, it's, not like people don't know it's that. It's disappointing. You know, this is yeah, this stuff's like, been out there. They, there's so many recommendations and reports and everything showing how important it is to have you know a strong network and advocacy group around you and help help you through it, but they don't, they don't help them at all. Like. There's so such little support for them uh, as part of this whole issue. It's uh, it blows my mind. But you know, even just yesterday, I uh, I couldn't help myself on LinkedIn. I had to comment on uh, two ministers in New South Wales were on there. Our uh, emergency services minister and our other minister for I think is digital technologies, but his other portfolio is actually the workers' compensation system. You know, they were on there uh, showcasing uh, the improvements to one of the apps that we have in New South Wales called Fires Near Me, which is like a community information thing to uh, keep people updated about fires. And they're obviously looking at including floods on the one platform. But I really had to jump on there and go, it's a real shame that with your portfolios, you can't be equally promoting and pushing development in apps that help the responders to those things that you're, you're literally you know, promoting because, you know, uh, the, the only one I know of that I could access was one that was given to me as a trial from, from, uh, Phoenix Australia, actually, oh, they did a trial with recently retired fire rescue, New South Wales members, like I was at the time under a, a program they called solar. And, and, you know, it was a fantastic app, but you know, it's being done by research organizations, not the government. Like it's, it, uh, it's just disappointing. Yeah. It's disappointing. I, I don't know what else to say about it. And when you talk about how, how advanced Canada is, and I'm sure other jurisdictions are a long way ahead of where we're at, uh, you know, we, we already know what we need to fix and know what we've got to get on with. It's just, it's tokenistic. As you said, it's sort of tokenistic lip service mm. at, at the top levels, unfortunately, to not progress any of this stuff. No, if it, and if I hear one more time, you know, the words, well, this is a complex issue that needs a complex resolution. It ain't complex. The work's been done. You know, there's enough out there, yeah. but it's convenient to use that word. But really what it comes down to is the dollar. They don't want to scratch the hornet's yeah. nest because if that door is ever opened, there's so box. many people that are suffering. And even to get into a position, of, you know, uh, ahead of the curve it, by starting now, mm. say, with people coming into these types of roles is going to cost money. And, of course, as we know, mm. they don't 
they don't they don't want yeah. to do that. They're happy to just you know somehow let things stay. Well, you know, the, the same as the two nineteen Senate inquiry. You know, that was yeah. that was I, I held great hope for that, but it turned out to be a complete disappointment. Well, let's let's raise that issue <laughs> this year and uh, re, re, reinvigorate the discussion on that Indeed. one. That's what this walk's all about. Yep. But it's it is interesting. Actually, one of the things I didn't understand because there's a lot of re, I guess recognition of military veteran community, and I guess it's quite well known. There's a lot of stuff out there that is advocacy for military veterans and and supporting military veterans. And I I never draw a comparison between like policing and emergency services and military because it's not the same. It's different. But from a volume point of view, I didn't understand how many magnitudes of uh, uh, more people are coming out of the police and emergency services world with, you know, very similar issues to deal with at the end of the day as a, like as a number, as a volume Mm. measurement. And because I didn't, I, I did not understand. I didn't realise that the New South Wales Police Force alone is has got thousands and thousands of more pe- more current serving members than the Royal Australian Air Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, mm. I didn't understand. I didn't understand those sort of comparisons. Mm. And then, I guess once you include, you know, New South Wales Ambulance, Fire Rescue New South Wales, State Emergency Service, VRA, uh, Surf Life Saving, and the Rural Fire Service, particularly, mm. they've got the most members. Um, albeit a lot of them are voluntary and probably not operational, but as a number, that like that's more than the whole Australian Defence Force just in New South Wales. Mm. Yeah. And you know, not not everybody in the military or in the police or emergency services world, not everybody gets needs help. Not everybody gets banged up, but a lot of them do. Mm. And you know, just like in the military, there's a lot of there's a, not, a lot of non-operational roles in the military, mm. and yeah. same with the police and emergency services. But there's a lot of operational roles in both of them. And you know, when you just look at the numbers, thinking, hang on a minute, just in New South Wales alone, we, we're dealing with more people in the defence. Mm. Oh, absolutely. That's both. Current serving and obviously former members probably probably got even more former members mm. with the churn through the different agencies that we mm. have here. It's just it's mind boggling to think you know and in, in New South Wales what really gets up my goat is the the fact that we've got a New South Wales government department for veterans mm. which is a fed which are federal employees but we don't have a government department mm. that looks after former emergency services or police. No. No, that's right. And no, I, I, I tell you, it's not right. lost upon me because um, I, I know those those folks that have transitioned out of the military into the into the police as you do, and and many of them, most of them will say to me, in particular, though, you know, those that are in policing, this is this is far harder than what it, you know what I did in the military. And um, and I remember mm. a, a major general in the in the Australian Army who uh, had brothers um, in the AFP, and I, you know, he he had his own issues, and I remember him. Him saying to me, you know, many years ago that um, he said, I'm worried. He said, in defence, he, he said, sure, it's not perfect, but there's there's a there's a mechanism to help. And, and he said, I'll, I'll be quite blunt. We we go into intense periods, and there's there's an element of people that you know are are out there on on the front, but we do it for three months, six months, and we rotate them out. And they come home and they get to refresh and train and do all that before we send them back in, you know, using Afghanistan as the example. He said, but in the police, he said, what I see is, is that you come to work every day and depending, of course, on what you do, but, you know, you could have multiple things you're exposed to, 
and that you go home and then you come back mm. and you do the same and you go home and you come back and you do the you never get taken out mm. you never have a period of you know it's a relentless. year exactly yeah. and and that's what Dr. Kil- yeah. Kevin Gilmartin that's what he talked about you know yeah. way back when he started his the, the whole um, emotional survival and you look at the the systems of the body and they're not made to do that you know the military do this and then they they drop to a period of calmness then they go back they get prepared they train they go back into it but in yeah. law inf- you, 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 it's impossible you can't do that it's uh, continuous isn't it mm-hmm. yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you grant that the um obviously you know we've got the heart to heart walk coming up and the launch and we're going to be bringing up the uh regards to the 14 recommendations from the senate inquiry in 2019 just looking through them obviously they only supported one of the recommendations um and that was the um the committee recommends that compulsory first responder mental health awareness training includes safety plans be implemented every first responder organisation in Australia. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the only one they supported. Well, that, that's an easy tick and it's not their oh, responsibility. No, that, was, that was a brilliant tick. Yeah, yeah. Self, it's just, but did it even happen? Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's uh, happened, but obviously that was, uh, what, 2019, obviously yeah. um, they supported it. But um, as I said, like in regards, obviously, you know, for the listeners and that, and obviously they had um, one recommendation that was supported in principle and that was the committee uh, recommends that government work with state and territory governments to collect comprehensive data on the occurrence of mental health injuries and suicide in first responders. Mm. Well, we all know that hasn't happened yet. So, no. and, and Paul, it's it's not despite multiple efforts. I mean, oh no, of course not. The, you know, I try to get the peak bodies involved, um, being, for instance, you know, in law enforcement, um, the mm. AIPM, but also because they they now the Australian Institute of Police Management. I thought that'd be a, a no-brainer to, to, to start mm. this. I believe they're doing something now, but, I mean, I'm talking about in, you know, even when I was in the States doing that. The second was ANSPAR, the Australian New Zealand um, Police, the, the research arm. And the, the response I got back from them was, well, we, we put out a, what was it, a, a statement of principles or something. It's not what yeah. I was talking about. You know, looking for, looking for an entity to be able to do exactly what you're saying, Milne, because yeah. the, 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 the research is there. It's certainly there overseas. Mm. It's not specific to Australia. And like I said, you know, every every organisation, every every nation is slightly different. But it wouldn't. It's not something that is, you know, onerous to set up and establish. My opinion is, it's the fear of doing that of what comes out of it, because I, that's where it's not not controllable, and it'll all yeah. come with a dollar cost, and it's not going to yeah, be. Yeah. It's not going to be uh, an appetite for that. In, in, I mean, successive governments of there's no government can put their hand up and say, you know, we we've championed first responders. No, yeah. you know, there's individuals yeah. that have, but no, no government has in Australia. Yeah. It's just like yeah. trying to get a clear picture of it, though. But obviously, you know, it could be frightening for some to actually see the actual clear picture of actually what's happening in Australia. Yeah, you know, like you know, just like even noting some of the government response to the recommendations, like. There was one um, the committee recommends that the go- Commonwealth Government establish a national register of health professionals who specialise in first responder mental health. Mm. Wouldn't it be so easy for a person who is suffering from a mental health condition to go to the national registry and go, okay, this is such and such, he's in my location, yeah. he deals with first responder mental health, I can contact him. Mm. Yep. Yeah. You know, it solves so many issues for so many people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear that all the time in the... the- PTSD group and other groups that I'm part of is, you know, people literally yellow paging, <laughs> getting out the yellow pages to look up a psychologist and then finding out th- third time round that it's still the bad fit because they don't get me and 
Yeah. And I have recommendations and stuff like that. It's just, that just seems so easy to do. Yeah. And it's, it, it it's is. It's all that information. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, 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 the culture in policing or in law enforcement, um, you know, is, isn't favourable to help seeking behaviour. So it, you can rely on on the the, the bush system where you, you talk to your mates and say, hey, well, who, who's good and who's not? But if you're in mm. that in that situation where you're still worried about declaring, you want you, you want to go down that yeah. pathway oh, of yeah. seeking help, but you don't want to go and let everyone know that you're doing it for the, all the all the reasons we know why. Well, that makes yeah. it hard because yeah, yeah, and we just individuals are just reinventing the wheel all the time um, in in doing that. And I and I I think the statistics, and it's probably more an American or a Canadian one. It's usually between three and five psychologists that people see before they find one that they connect yeah. with. You know. Yeah. That, that's that's almost re-traumatizing um, when mm. you're doing that, and yeah. and you know I've been to some like that where you um, you think you're on a good thing, and then all of a sudden you're you realise you're dealing with people who have no idea what exactly. it is that. Yeah. And at least I rate the ones that what that have said, look, I, I've never dealt with anyone from. I'm happy to see you, but I don't. I can only assume what it is, and well, I don't want someone that assumes that I need someone that that. And there are those people there. I know that now. Uh, and like you two, you do, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. There's nowhere this day we should be able to click on a portal and go. This, these are the ones in my local area, and uh, go from there. Something as simple as that. I just, I luckily stumbled across the perfect, um, you know, st- like standout psychologist that I've, like in all of the ones I've seen over the years through work and mm. subsequent. Um, you know, at the right, it just, I'm so lucky because it, it happened at the right time for me when I really, I really needed the, that help. It had to start, yeah. like, if it wasn't, then it was probably going to be never. And there it was. So yeah. I don't know. I was just so yeah. lucky. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, there's plenty that aren't. So Milne, this uh, you know you're you're quite well across all of the the, the Senate report from 2019, the recommendations. Is there any standouts from that that you um, that I guess that raise your eyebrows? Well, just one of the uh, one of the recommendations was noted uh, back in 2019. Just in regards for the Commonwealth government to make available funding for research in the prevalence of mental health conditions in retired first responders. Um, it's such a wide area of um, um, people of the you know have left. You know, emergency services, being a first responder, and they're obviously still dealing with their conditions many years down the track. And mm. sometimes, you know, they might be fine, and all of a sudden it will just pop out and, um, and start dealing with um, past tra- traumatic experiences. But mm. then you look um, towards, you know, obviously suicides and stuff like that. And when they pass on, it's not actually collected data on what they were like they were volunteers or the first responders you know they could be a, a gardener or you know a butcher or something like that and they passed on mm. and it could be the data would be collected they'll be put down as you know those professions but actually it relates a lot back to when their time in being a volunteer and first responders so all that data really needs to be collected and it will really give us a clear picture on exactly what's happening with obviously our retired personnel as well yeah, it doesn't seem too hard to add that no. tick box or two to a like a P seventy nine A or whatever form is that's got to be filled in for a deceased in other jurisdictions. I yeah. mean, it's not. Yeah, and the you know 
in Australia, we're bereft of that. But mm. you got people like you know Professor John Violante in the US. You got uh, Nick Papazoglu, both who were former police officers who went on to get their PhD. Um, John mm. Violante, John's been around forever. He was one of the really early early researchers in this, and he has a wealth of data on that, um, US focused about what happens post post retirement. And he's even got it down to a time frame, you know, three to five years. People will often, once they retire or they leave, you know, they start to their, their health fails, and it's and it's and it's not necessarily the mental health. It's a lot of it's the physical health. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a a book by Professor Van Bessel. He he talks about the body keeps the score. He's a psychiatrist, and he's 100 percent right. You know, um, what happens psychologically manifests itself in the body and there's, there's this type of information that is out there the uk have got it in their oscar kilo program they've done the same thing in the uk and uh, uh, dr nick carlton who's doing that rcmp program that you you talked about the five-year longitudinal study they've done it as well that data is there specific to their you know to their countries and their so you know if someone were going to do that the, the platform in terms of the base of the research is there it's just the the, the funding for it I mean, I'm part of my. One of the other things I do is uh, I'm the the um, chair of the uh, Law Enforcement Public Health Advisory Board, and we've got the special interest group on that on on law enforcement, which we actually fought for to get a part of that, which wasn't hard. Um, mm. And, and that's that's run by a very dear friend of mine in Canada. She's the chair of that, Prof, uh, Professor Caddy Kemkar, and all that information is there. It's just about coalescing it. It's about having a repository yeah. and a portal and having someone. Mm. And there'd be a, a gazillion PhD students out there that would love to do something like this that would help them with exactly. a, a dissertation. And it is not that expensive. But, you know, to, to try and get funding for this kind of stuff, I've I've been trying for years. Mm. And it just, it really does my head in where people, I, I, don't, I don't know whether they don't see the importance of it. I think the difference between military veterans and, and, and or military and police is that People in Australia on a day-to-day basis have an interaction with, with police. Unfortunately, most of it, as we've all heard, is negative, you know. Why don't you go yeah. out and do real crime? Why are you giving me a yeah. ticket? Why am I getting this? Why am I yeah. getting that? Um, but that's what we hear a lot of. But, I mean, I only go – I can go back to the time, you know, when I used to march with my grandfather when I was at school and the cadets and I – I guess I got spat on because I was a warmonger as a 16-year-old when the military mm. were on the nose. Yeah. You know, well they've done a great job changing the perception of that. We need to be doing the same thing. We need to actually yeah. focus more on, on you know, the, the 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 work that we do that a lot like we're doing here that people don't see behind the scenes and what it means yeah. to be you know a law enforcement officer, a police officer. But we don't. You know, it's all about the negative things. It's about the corruption, the poor behaviour, the this, the that. Yeah, you know, I occasionally think work, you get the good stories. Well, we do. Maybe yeah, well, we, negative. we did. Yeah. No, my point is, is that it's not it's not hard to do. Um, it just needs, and it doesn't need a whole bucket of money. It just needs some money because you know it it, it can't be done by people that aren't professionals. It can't be done without academia yeah. and without people that are researchers because it won't be done properly, and it, it'll it'll be full of false information. And I, I, you know, I, I would personally think that's that, that's a two to three year project that would, um, the the amount of data and the amount of information that would come out of that alone would be significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I know. Um, I know. Organisationally, they've got a they've got a bit of work to do too because the um, I don't know whether it's the same in the AFP in the the Northern Territory, but 
certainly in New South Wales, the, the saying, there's nothing more X than an X uh, is prevalent oh, for yep. people in the cops. And uh, I literally, I was listening to the Police Veterans Victoria po- uh, podcast, the, the podcast um, the other day, and they had one of their deputy commissioners on talking about, you know, support and, and what's available. But, you know, even he recognised the fact that the organisation's got to, uh, I suppose, stance itself differently to engage former members better because there is that bloody horrible attitude from people within the organisation that once you're out, you know, you're definitely out and then, you know, interacting with them. Uh, and I remember some of the attitudes that I was surrounded with and I really hope I never did did the same thing, but it was very much a case of, oh, you've been out for a while, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have any idea what it's like these days. And, you know, and it was not a, you know, an RSL club sit around the bar and engage uh, or welcome that sort of former former service community back in. It was very much, well, once you're out, you're out and you're not going to be part of this ever again unless you've got really good friends that still, I suppose, admit you're back into those circles, you know, and that's something that I, I certainly felt given that I'd left and then moved as well and, um, you know, became good mates with one one local guy. But, you know, as far as the organisation goes and the general the general workforce goes, you know, you don't feel, I, I, I don't feel welcomed back into it in any way, shape or form now. You know, I think once the organisations get that a little better, I think maybe that might flow on to other improvements. But yeah, it's, it's got a long way to go, I think. Well, I mean, I can, I can speak on my experience from the AFP. I mean, when I, when I retired in, in 2019, um, I actually said, when I came back to Australia, you know, I'm, what, if, if you need, I'm happy to help. When they got the funding for the SHIELD program, I was asked to help set up the advisory board, and we did that. And we had we had set up an absolute cracker of an advisory board. I mean, I presented on it when I went over to the IACP, and, and they were really, really interested to see the outcomes. We had two meetings. Two meetings in, um, in, in 2020. Yeah, COVID hit for sure, but they were, they were virtual meetings. Never had one hmm. after that. I had to FOI my old organisation to find out what was going on because the people that I got on the board were asking me what what's going on, and these these weren't people that had time on their hands. These were, you know, academics, professors. Yeah. Uh, there were elite sporting people. You know, th- it was an amazing yeah. board, and for me to have to do that was was really gut wrenching. Yeah. And then I got. Yeah. You know, I got the, the monologue spin when I met with the people and I said, don't spin me, I know this. But what really, um, what really, uh, you know, uh, disappoints me is that when, when you've got a, you give a life of service, there's a reason why people like us are attracted to this this work and you, you give life service, you have identity, you retire, you've still got a lot to offer. And I, I thought it'd be a no-brainer and I said to the AFP, I'm, 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 you know, use me for whatever you want, bring me down, I'm happy to do it. How many times do you think that yeah. that request has come? Yeah, zero. Never crickets. Zero. I don't waste my time yeah, in Australia anymore. I invest all my time in Southeast Asia, Pacific, Canada, the US, and the UK because I actually, mm. you know, and this is a, perhaps a little bit egocentric, but I actually feel valued there. I feel here mm. that I've I've actually hit my head so many times against the wall that always I'm going to end up with this CTE in 10 years' time, mm. you know, and I don't need I don't need another diagnosis, you know. I, I collect them like mm. football cards. but And that's that to me is a sad state. Um, you know, yeah. I'll give kudos to, to Queensland police. They, they often use me, you know, um, a, a little bit more than anyone else. But I would have thought 
you know, with with thirty, nearly thirty five years in the AFP, yeah. and um, the fact that what, what I was done. doing that they might have at least, um, uh, you know, asked me to do something, but Crazy. No, zero. Very dis- very it's, disappointing. It, one of the things that worries me in New South Wales too. I think the government just handed out ninety, I think it's ninety one million bucks or something to New South Wales Police in a program they're calling the Pulse Program, mm. which is all about preventing and and assisting. Um, that, that sort of mental health welfare aspect, you know, they keep talking about it being informed by lived experience, but it worries me what that is, who, who and what that's going to be because, you know, who, who is, who, who are they going to go to to ask for that lived experience input? And, you know, what, what biases is, is the organisation going to put on that information they get? Are they going to, are they going to tilt it to something that they can easily navigate and implement? Sel- selective invitations to suit the narrative. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It, like they're good at that. They, they're really good at that. And, and that worries me because I, I'm, I'm damn sure I won't get a voice in that space. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've seen it, I suppose I've seen it too many times, just, you know, they're hearing what they want to hear or whatever. But anyway, that's how it goes. But hey, look, we've been talking for ages, so um, I better let you go. Uh I've got, a, I've got a question before we hit our uh, final three about your uh, fundraising and awareness efforts dragging very large machines and implements and whatever else. Have you got a favourite? Because you've, you've, for those that don't know, you've dragged along the ground things like cruise ships to C-17 Globemasters to trains to I don't know what else, but is there a favourite in there? Is it like, and it, and it doesn't, I'm not saying that for one that you actually conquered. Is there, uh, is there one you didn't beat, which is still your favourite or, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's quite, there's quite, the numbers that I, that I didn't beat are growing exponentially in the wrong way, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a learning, it's a learning journey. Um, I got to say that the hardest one I ever did was, was the, um, the C-130 that I spoke about that I did live on the Kerry Ann right. show. Um, and the reason it was the hardest is because that I got very little support from the um, Australian Air Force on that one. So I, I essentially had to pull it with its, with its tyres, you know, half inflated, which is what they're meant to do. Um, and, and that was really difficult. But I, I'd have to say my all-time favourite was, the I guess, the one that sort of put me on the map when I when I broke the Guinness record for the 201-tonne steam locomotive. And and the, the reason why I say that is, that, and it, it's not widely known, but I actually did that twice on the same day. Right. So there were, we used to have this um, Australia, the World Strongman Series in Australia. We had all, you know, former World Strongest Men and all that there. So um, this was being filmed for a, a UK program called BBC Record Breakers. And for anyone that's old enough, they might remember the the uh, UK mob called the band called Bucks Fizz, which won the Eurovision back in the day. Um, well, the lead singer of that was the host of this program. So they came out to Australia and we they set the train up. And I, I'd never pulled anything like that before. And um, I was asked to go first. But great, use me as the bunny. You know, the world record was 14 <laughs> metres at the time. And um, they, they, it was a school holidays in, in April around Easter. And they brought in, you know, a bunch of kids and all that. And it was great. And one of the things that the crew to make it, Interesting. So the uh, director said to all the people, you know, if anyone gets over the 14 metres, you know, really put your hands up and yell and scream yeah. and what have you and make a big deal. And I didn't think anything of it, you know. And I remember starting it. They blew the whistle and I, I started to get it moving and I thought, oh, this is all right. And I kept going and going. And I, yep. I was lucky because I had um, I, I had the former four times world's strongest man, Magnus, very Magnuson, on the side doing some commentary. 
and he'd give me a few tips, which was he only ever gave me tips if I wasn't up against him. If I was against him, he never got any tips. <laughs> uh, but I remember seeing the 14 metre line, and I uh, I remember I know the wheels had to cover, not me. And I, I remember seeing it, and I was kind of like doing the bear crawl, and I was hanging on, and I went under my my legs, and I thought, oh, geez, I've got this. And I, I remember I heard them say, he's done it, he's done it, and then the, the train just stopped. And it was like a dead set. Oh. And I thought, shit, someone's put a coin or something on the railway track or there's a rock. Or... <laughs> and they're all yelling at me, push, push. And I was, my head was about to explode. And, and anyway, the, the engineer came running down, the guy that they had up in the – and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. He said, I put the brakes on. And I'm like, oh, no. like what? You put the brakes on? He goes, <laughs> yeah, well, I saw – because he, he couldn't see me because of the, oh. the, the nose of the engine where he was sitting uh, yeah, and he was right. why because he said to me beforehand he goes you know i really i don't want to run over you and i said you know what yeah, i'll be proud right. if you run over me because that means i got the thing going that fast um i said there's no <laughs> chance but he when the kids all did this in railway speak double hands in oh, the yeah. air means stop so oh, he interpret he yeah, panicked right. and interpreted it as stop and um i'd expended so much energy and i thought oh, that'd be right you know um, i'm going to get ripped off and a couple of the other guys pulled it further and then I spoke to the organisers and I said well you know can I get another go at this because it wasn't my fault and they said well only if the yeah. only if the competitors all agree and thank goodness they did a couple of them weren't that happy so I did it again at the very end um and and that's where I you know I, I pulled it 30 36.8 meters but the only reason I stopped is that I started to run out of track because they didn't think it'd go that far wow um and uh and even to this day, I think back back to that, and I didn't really understand the magnitude of doing that. Um, yeah. I, I was just lucky I was able to do it and and win an event. Um, and then, I think it was about eight weeks later, a, a package comes to me at home, and it's a Guinness Book of Records certificate and a letter and all wow. that. And I'm going, oh, wow, wow. you know, awesome. <laughs> I can call myself a world record holder. Yeah. So that and, and that was, I guess, sort of the pivotal point in that strongman career, which launched right. me from there because I guess it was a an inadvertent outcome for something that I never really ever thought would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet your poor old body's paying the price for that sort of carry on though nowadays. Well, you know, if I, I, I mean, we're on video here. I could show you all the scars, but yeah. uh, the, 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 the 11, 11 surgeries I've had since I've retired is testament to that. Six of them on yeah, this shoulder, including a, a full replacement. But yeah, wow. you know, that's what happens. Yeah. Well... You've done a lot of good though, so um, I guess your aches and pains. You can wake up in the morning thinking, thinking back at that. I guess. Well, I, I reckon I reckon I could get a sponsorship with Panadol at least. You'd think, wouldn't you, or Nurofen <laughs> or something like that? Nurofen, <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, look, this has been a an epic chat with you about quite a spectrum of stuff from uh, you know what you've done in your career, what you've done outside your career, and and beyond. So. Um, Thanks very much for your time and thanks, Milne, co-host. Thank you. So, look, just closing out, I did mention at the start that we'd ask you those hot debrief questions. So, looking back over your time, uh, either professionally, personally, or blended in, I don't, I don't sort of ask these questions with reference to any one particular event, but looking back over your time, what do you think worked well for you? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, there's, there's, there were so many things that worked well, but I, I guess it took me a little while to learn, but it, it was to take, don't take things personally. 
Um, and in particular, in the culture in, in policing, you know, thing, things can be very personally driven. And I always tried to take that mm. out of the scheme of things. You know, I, I, I forgave, I guess, in my mind, a, a lot of people for things that they did or they said or, you know, didn't do or say. Um, but also, too, mm. whenever I was at work, uh, even dealing with, you know, the crooks, the bad guys, the whatever, lawyers in particular, defence barristers, that was the hardest part. <laughs> I just kept telling myself, yeah. don't take it personally, don't take it personally, you know. <laughs> and and, and that was a, yeah. you know, we had body armour and stuff like that that we wear when we go out, but we don't have a body armour that goes around our brain and, you know, yeah. keeps stuff away. And I, I found that to be really yeah. useful. And I just kept saying, don't, don't yeah, take right. it personally. And I used to say that yeah. to everybody who worked for me. You know, um, especially when they come in having a rant about things, and I say, you know what, you you can make something out of this, but just take away the personal element of it. You know, even if it was delivered yep. personally, just don't think about it, let it wash. And and that's that resilience that you got to have. Uh, and and you guys know it when you work in the road and things like that, and you call the names and people yeah. spit and throw stuff at you. Know, it's like it's so hard not to do that. But like I said, it took me yep. some time. So on the flip side of that, what do you think? didn't go so well or uh, what did anything go wrong that, that you can put your finger on that um, I guess affected where you're at now? Yeah. What immediately comes to mind is um, I, I was never one to chase promotion, but I, the longer that I was in the job, I realized that, you know, that the ideas that I had and the things that I wanted to, to achieve weren't going to come unless I, unless I moved in that, promotional yeah. realm and I, I think I'd um, so I joined in 85 uh, I think it was 17 years before I got my first promotion um, you know to, to, oh. to sergeant and then it rapidly went beyond that so I think I was promoted to sergeant in 2002 superintendent in 2004 commander in 2006 um, but again you know I, I didn't I didn't actively chase those but what I did find was when I was applying for a superintendent I think I had for um, no thanks. And I remember saying on the fifth time, you know what, I'll, I'll apply one more time and if I don't get it, well, it wasn't meant to be. And I was okay with that. Mm. Um, and I got, uh, you know, the whole promotion systems in the organ, it really comes down to, to personalities because you could be found suitable yeah. with one lot, do exactly the same thing for the next lot and be found unsuitable. <laughs> and and that's that's a whole story for another show. Um, but yeah. but <laughs> I... Um, Again, and I, you know, I, I, ne I never took it personally, um, although I spent a lot of time ruminating about it. But what I, what I found was that um, I guess I wasn't very good in in that space, and there were there were some people who could talk the leg off a chair, and um, some of them I wouldn't even call really, you know, technically very good, but you know, they, they got promoted because they were able to, to talk their way through that, and that frustrated me. And I, and for a while there, I thought. I, that's how I need to do it. And I started to go down that pathway and then I stopped myself and I went, no, no, because you're not being true to who you are. And mm. be true to yourself. And if if you get it, you get it. It was meant to be. If you don't, it just doesn't fit the way the organisation is. Um, you know, and I, and I struggled with that because, you know, one half of me really wanted, because I had things that I wanted to achieve and do and ideas and I really wanted to go there but I also realized that probably wasn't a strong point um, and I did I worked on it and I did get better at it but I did it to, and I stayed within my value base I guess I wasn't going to purport to be yeah. someone who I wasn't 
and I've always said if you know if people don't like me, well, that, that's fine. That's their problem, um, and I'm not going to change them. But I am, um, you know, I always like to think that um, I was who I was, who I said I was, who I presented, who I was. Um, so there were no misgivings. Mm. That's certainly an attribute that seems to have been throughout your whole life. Uh, from from our mm. chat today, mm. yeah, for sure. So look, if you had your time again, um, I don't I don't like how the the third part of a hot debrief goes for this sort of uh, interaction. But if you had your time again, what would you do differently? But I, I think it's probably easier asked if you could have a chat with yourself on the way through the uh, the doors of the academy. What would you tell yourself? Well, that's another good question because I often get asked by people, you know, I oh, can my son wants to go in or my daughter wants to go in, can you can you have a, a chat with them? So I've, I've, I guess I've mm. done that now um, with the benefit of hindsight. And and I yeah. always say, I wished I had have known now. It's like a bit of like Benjamin Button. I wished I knew I wished, yeah. I wished I knew then what I knew now that I could apply it early yeah. on. But that's of course we know that's impossible. And you know, all, all is I, I say to people is is keep your eyes wide open, um, and I would I said this to me as an 18 year old keep your eyes wide open, um, and and make sure that um, you you go in with a full understanding of what you're getting yourself into, and potentially what can happen down the track, yeah. and and that's because you know the, all three of us have, have, have you know fallen to that, uh, but yeah. I said and don't ever be afraid that if you feel that it's not for you to step out and not do it because there's nothing wrong with that yeah. because not everybody's suited, you know, to a, to a career in this. But and the final part of that is to go back what, you know, you both talked about. And I say this to my kids all the time, have a go. What's the worst that could happen? You might, you might not succeed, but that will lead to success somewhere else. So just yeah. give it your best yeah. shot and just have a go. And don't get caught up on the would have, should have, could have, may have, what happens, what if, and don't yeah. do that bloody rumination that, well, I do a lot of and I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we're all guilty of that, but yeah, yeah, it's good advice though. Look, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. What we've talked about is gold for many people out there and, and no doubt people like myself uh, that are trying to find that validation in other people's stories and, you know, just that comfort that you get from sitting around a speaker or whatever the whatever the whatever the listening platform is that they're on, but just hearing that familiar that familiar storyline from the policing world or the emergency services world, and you know a few good yarns, but then also the uh, the flip side of that is the the real human element that does unfortunately plague a lot of us that is as an outcome. And you know, I really really thank you for your openness and honesty about yourself and and your story and. Yeah, it's been a been a pleasure to have you on. No, no, the pleasure's all mine, and um, I, I I've really enjoyed it. And I'm just looking that it's two and a half hours. So good luck, good yeah. luck cutting it down or doing whatever you do. Yeah, have, fun, have fun, Matt. <laughs> my my kids are going to be busy for a while. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. nothing they're, they're like a bit of indentured labour. Yeah, that's right. No, it depends what the content yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, awesome. Great. It's awesome to talk to you as always. Uh, always great conversation. Um, yeah, no, it's just been tremendous to listen to you and obviously you've had a tremendous career and what you've done and achieved and been so many wonderful places. Um, obviously, you know, great family behind you and that's just uh, truly honourable to speak to you. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, no, Absolutely. thanks, Millie. And you're 100%. You, you, you don't do this alone. Um, I've, I've just written a book and I talk about that. I thought law enforcement is a family career. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. whether, whether the family like it or not, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Just drag them along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah righto. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys. No, appreciate thanks, it. Guys. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.